I don't think I can stomach any more of this garbage. Exactly. Same here. Words out of my mouth. Welcome, everyone, to Episode 8 of Some Like It, Scott, part of the Media Plug Podcast Network. I'm your host, Scott Shelton, and I'm here today with my co-host, as always, Scott Harvey. Scott, we may have dipped into some movies on the podcast that we've been less impressed with than some of the ones we reviewed at the start of the year recently, but I have a feeling we've run into two good ones this week. But before we get to that, how are you doing today? I am doing good. Uh, just trying to balance the, uh, the excitement of watching the uh, playoffs and the NBA and NHL that are going on right now with uh, studying for exam season um, coming up in the, in the law school. Uh, so I, I'd say right now the, the playoffs are probably winning out, but um, <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll, I'm going to have to crack down here pretty soon, I guess. Yeah, I, I suppose, it, as, as I always said in college and as all my friends said, you know, it gets done, but sometimes it doesn't get done in the most efficient way possible. Yeah, yeah, which in law school that really doesn't cut it. So fair enough, fair enough. Well, I let's not take up too more too much more of your time than we have to. We have a full agenda this week, so why don't we go ahead and jump right into our first movie, and that is Isle of Dogs. We know better than anyone that Isle of Dogs has had a very tricky release schedule, starting with a fairly limited release last month, before slowly trickling out to a wider spread of theaters more recently. Featuring stop-motion animation and directed by one of the modern-day auteur filmmakers, Wes Anderson, it's not surprising to me that it's only collected $21 million at the box office, because it's almost certainly a film with very particular sensibilities that, you know, not everyone would necessarily be a fan of. I mean, that being said, if its content doesn't necessarily appeal to all audiences, surely its ensemble voice cast should. It features Brian Cranston, Ed Norton, Bill Murray, Jeff Goldblum, Francis McDormand, Greta Gerwig, Scarlett Johansson, Harvey Keitel, Tilda Swinton, F. Murray Abraham, Courtney B. Vance, Liev Schreiber, among others. The talent in the movie is just incredible. But uh, the film is set in a dystopian, not too distant, I think it's 20 years in the future, Megasaki City, Japan, where dogs have been exiled by the Megasaki, Megasaki City Mayor Kobayashi to Trash Island, due to an intense fear of a dog flu virus spreading through the population. The movie follows the exploits of a group of exiled dogs, Chief, Rex, King, Boss, and Duke, along with Atari Kobayashi, the adopted nephew of Mayor Kobayashi, and the boys hunt to find his dog's spots, while some dog, quote, loyalists race to find a cure for the dog flu virus back in Megasaki City. All right, Scott, I think that should be a good enough primer for the discussion we're about to have. Before we dive into some more specifics, what were your general takes on this latest Wes Anderson film? Yeah, so the thing about Wes Anderson is that, you know, everyone knows that he has a very unique style in his films, and there's really, there, well, there is no other filmmaker who, uh, that, that is like him that were, is working today. Um, and so, you know, a lot of people have really pigeonholed him as, well, you either love him or you hate what he's doing. Um, and I think for a lot of people that's true, probably, because um, I know people who love him, who he's their favorite director, um, and I know people who can't stand his movies. Uh, but I don't know. For some reason, I feel like I've occupied kind of the middle ground there because there are some of his movies that I love, um, and there are some which I am not a huge fan of. So, um, you know, it, 
for whatever reason, I, I've kind of, uh, you know, enjoyed and also not enjoyed some of his movies. I haven't really fallen on either side of the love it or hate it debate. Um, so, you know, I didn't really know what to think going into this movie, especially because his last stop-motion animation film, uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox, uh, although it was very critically acclaimed, it was not one of my favorite um, Wes Anderson movies. Um, so I was, you know, really hoping that this movie wouldn't follow suit from that one. And uh, in my opinion, it did not. Um, I was very satisfied with this movie pretty much from beginning to end. Uh, I thought it had a lot of humor. Um, obviously, Wes Anderson, like, even if you hate his movies, you can't say that he isn't an unbelievable craftsman when it comes to film. And we'll talk about some of the, you know, maybe moments or scenes in this movie in, in particular that are just so intricately developed. I mean, his movies are like a Rube Goldberg device. They're just, they work like clockwork. Uh, everything is just synchronized together so perfectly. Uh, and I think, yeah, Isle of Dogs is certainly no exception. Um, so, you know, obviously, e even in the movies, which I don't like of his, that's always something which you can count on from Wes Anderson. He's going to deliver in the visual department and, and, in, and really just the general craftsmanship of the movie. But I was really won over by the story. Um, in this movie and also by all of the characters um you know some of this some of the problems i've had with wes anderson movies in the past is that i think you know characters can, in some of his movies are a little too self-absorbed um the royal tenant bobs is an example of a movie which a lot of people love a lot of people it's their favorite movie but i never just i just couldn't connect really with any of the characters um but you know in this movie i didn't feel that way which is you know maybe a little strange because the, most of the characters are dogs. Um, but I thought that this movie had a uh, big heart at the center of it. Um, and certainly it does take some dark um, turns. I mean, if you know anything about Wes Anderson's history with dogs, um, in, in his other movies, he has a very, he has a tendency of... Uh, Killing animals. Not, yeah, exactly. Not treating dogs with the greatest amount of respect. Yeah, and cats, um, I mean, to be fair, cats as well. He does He does have a cat thrown out of a window in Grand Budapest true. Hotel. <laughs> which is one of my favorite moments in that movie. Um, but, uh, and, and so, you know, you do get some of that with Isle of Dogs. Uh, but also, I think, you know, you get a very tender portrayal of the relationship between humans and dogs. And, you know, personally, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not really a pet person at all. Like, I'm, not, I'm just not a, a big animal person. I mean, I do like dogs. If I had to have a pet, I would have a dog, probably. Um, so... You know, I was concerned that maybe I would be a little at a disconnect, but I wasn't really. I was still emotionally invested in this movie, and I think, you know, other people who aren't dog people, um, you can feel the same way about this movie. Um, I think that uh, overall it tells a very human story at its heart. Uh, so, yeah, I was, I was pretty won over by Isle of Dogs. Yeah, I mean, I know we've talked about Wes Anderson, if not on air, then off air plenty of times before. I'm not someone who's seen all of his work. I will admit that I've actually only seen Moonrise Kingdom and Grand Budapest Hotel, both of which I adore. I, I love both of those movies. In some, way, in some ways, for different reasons. But, you know, Isle of Dogs, when I saw that this was the next film he was doing, I'm... I'm all for seeing a Wes Anderson film. I, I know that I've I know that I've spoken about him in in these terms before, but like I, I view him similarly to you know Guillermo del Toro or Paul Thomas Anderson, and that they make particular kinds of movies that aren't going to appeal to everyone. And I'm really glad that they're made, even if I don't personally enjoy all of them. And this is no exception to that either. It's a different kind of film. There are so few feature films that have a large budget that have a large marketing budget, to say the least. 
that are stop motion animation. It's not a it's not a medium of film that we see very often, uh, especially not on the on you know big box office that has a wide release. And so it was different and interesting to see something, even though Wes Anderson has done it before, to see him return to that, to see him push the envelope on that medium of film, I thought was really cool. And and like you said, the story, it, it's, I mean, we talk all the time about like stories that are recycled or themes that are recycled. And, and, you know, maybe this isn't the most original story of all time, but Wes Anderson crafts stories in original ways, I think. And that's the thing that I think sets him apart for me from a lot of other filmmakers who who maybe try to do different things with their art is that even if it's even if you can boil his work down to similar tropes or plot points of other movies he's creating and you know realizing his vision in such unique ways that's mesmerizing when you see it on screen and i think he spoke to that a little bit already with how uh, surgical and precise uh, the way he edits films and edits them together and makes a, a singular vision realized on the screen yeah, I think, and I think that stop motion animation, in a lot of ways, is kind of a type of movie that was sort of made for Wes Anderson because it does require, like, I mean, I don't want to say greater craftsmanship because I think that takes away from what computer generated animation does. But I, you know, there's a sense that the, the artist is definitely more a part of the work. I think in a stop motion animation movie, uh, as opposed to you know a CGI animated movie. Um, so, and and then you know, it, stop motion is obviously most animated movies are CGI nowadays, so it, it there's something quirkier about it, and just the way that, you know, the, he uses a lot of really quick cuts and yep. uh, stuff like that in his movies, so I think stop-motion animation is just very well-suited to his filmmaking style, yep. um, and so I think he was really able to take advantage of that medium here. Um, I agree. A lot of interesting things. Yeah, I agree. I, I think that that's actually really well put. I think that stop-motion animation definitely serves his purposes. I mean, you see it across all of his movies, even the ones that aren't stop-motion animated, that those quick cuts, as you described, like really... Um, some people might even describe it uh, at the extreme as a choppy kind of filmmaking almost in terms of how quickly things bounce around, both from scene to scene and also within scenes. And to, to kind of continue on kind of the overarching Wes Anderson uh, film style, I, I thought that his very sharp wit and his particular kind of humor was very present in Isle Dogs, in some ways more so than either Moonrise Kingdom or Grand Budapest Hotel for me. I, I think that it's one that is consistent throughout the film and it's always in the background, even in the serious moments and sometimes even more so in the serious moments uh, for one reason or another. And that's something that I really appreciate. Not, not all the jokes land with me, but I found myself laughing quite often in Wes Anderson movies in general, but particularly for Isle of Dogs. Yeah, I agree. I think he had, he captures a very, with, with his humor, you know, it, it, it is witty and it's also that feeling of, Oh, am I supposed to be laughing, or you yeah. know, is this supposed to be a serious moment? Which I think is, uh, it, you know, that's really difficult to pull off. But I agree. I, I mean, I had uh, a lot of genuine laughs throughout this movie, um, and, and and more so than in a lot of Wes Anderson movies, including um, you know the two that you mentioned. For example, although Moonrise Kingdom is at the top of the list for me when yeah. it comes to his movies, yeah. um, you know, I think this movie on a on a humor level probably maybe struck more of a chord with me than that one. I agree, yeah. And you mentioned, like, the you're not you're never really sure whether you're supposed to be laughing when Wes Anderson makes a joke in his movie. We talked about the cat scene earlier, the getting thrown out the window from Grand Prix right. Hotel. I don't know if I've ever told you this story before, but I was in an indie movie theater in Williamstown where I went to college when I saw this movie for the first time, and I busted out laughing when he got when the cat threw out the window, and I was the only person in a full theater laughing, and it was incredibly awkward. 
yeah, that was the one one moment which I can really remember laughing out loud in that movie, and especially after when he goes and gives the the coat check or the luggage <laughs> yeah. tag or whatever, and they give him the, the dead cat. Basically, yep. I, I thought that was pretty hilarious. Anyway, yeah, back back to Isle of Dogs, maybe I think that it's probably worth just going ahead and, and talking more specifically about the ensemble voice cast. I mean, we'll get to the plot and the story, which you already mentioned that you thoroughly enjoyed, but I'd love to talk a little bit about the characters first. Yeah, I thought that the voice cast was universally outstanding and one of the best things about this movie. Um, you know, I think it says a lot about Wes Anderson that, you know, you, you talked about how these movies, you know, is, did, didn't make a ton of money and none of his movies really do. But the fact that he has such strong relationships with such big name actors, um, you know, people like, I mean, you know, for example, Ed Norton, yeah. uh, Jeff Goldblum and Bill Murray play three of the main dogs in this movie. I think at least one of them is in every single Wes Anderson movie, probably. Like I, th- I mean, I know, are, I know Ed Norton. Muses. Yeah, Ed Norton is uh, in pretty much every one, right? So. Yeah. Uh, but and Bob Balaban as well, who plays one of the other dogs, he's in a ton of Wes Anderson movies as well. But so you know, I think that it says a lot about Wes Anderson that he's able to attract not only these actors that he's been um, working with for years, but you know, other big names like Francis McDormand and like Brian Cranston and Liev Schreiber, for example, who I think is awesome. Um, but I uh, yeah, so it says a lot that I think that these people, even though they know that this isn't a movie, maybe that's gonna cash a big paycheck they really respect what wes anderson is doing um and i think and and respect him as a filmmaker and i think that their performances in the movies show that because a lot of times when you get big name actors in animated movies they can just kind of phone it in because it just requires a voice performance but i think every everyone here um took what wes anderson was doing very seriously and uh and, and 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 you know acted as if they were in a live action movie as if they were in any other movie um put that sort of skill into their vocal performances here and you know i mentioned leo schreiber i think he's great in everything i think he is one of the standouts here i thought brian cranston who i'm not sure if he's ever been in one of wes anderson's movies before but i thought he you know helped captured you know his performance was very well it it fit along with all the other performances including the ones from the wes anderson veterans like you know i didn't i didn't get the sense that he was out of touch with this movie at all yeah i mean Um, and he was the main role he was chief brian cranston played chief exactly yeah and i also enjoyed uh greta gerwig's performance as the uh, student who uh tries to take down uh yep mayor kobayashi um i thought that um she she brought a lot of uh flavor and a lot of energy to her performance as well but across the board everyone is excellent um it was one of the strongest things about the movie to me for sure i mean i remember when i saw the trailer for the first time for this movie and there's like the incredibly air like like almost narcissistic uh quality of the entire cast list getting spread across the screen and it's totally just because like there's so many ridiculous names as a part of the cast and i was just like i laughed because you know if if you can attract that that degree of cast and you know put it on the screen it's just like pretty incredible to me and i agree the the voice acting you know period you know not even necessarily saying that comparing it to regular acting it's just it's just remarkable the you know i'm a huge ed norton fan he's great brian cranston you've already mentioned uh bill bill murray was like fine for me i guess he was like he's kind of the veteran of of i think he probably is like the wes anderson veteran probably besides like him and f F murray abraham maybe too i don't know yeah i mean bill murray goes back to all the way back to rushmore which is kind of the movie that you know uh broke 
Wes Anderson out. I guess Jason Schwartzman would be his other real veteran, but he he didn't appear in this movie. Yeah, um, yeah. So I mean, Bill Murray. It's hard to be like, okay, he put in a he put in a solid performance, but like when you have, as you mentioned, Greta Gerwig. You know, Frances McDormand, even as the interpreter, was like, I thought she was great. Scarlett Johansson's like, I was, she was just like, it was just like weird to hear her voice coming out of a dog every time it it, it came. And then she has a great voice for animated movies, though. Yes, she does. I totally agree. I remember her, well, this is an animated movie, but her, just her voice role in her was like, it was really striking. Um, Courtney B. Vance is the narrator. Like, cat, like, just, it's just crazy. He narrates a lot of the Wes Anderson movies as well. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Like, his voice is pretty consistent uh, across all the, and I think he does a great job with, with the narration in all those movies. For sure, yeah. The bottom line is the voice cast is remarkable, and if even if you're like not turned on by Wes, like going to see a Wes Anderson movie, like it's probably worth just going and, and experiencing, you know, the voice acting, uh, let alone the the whole experience. Agreed. Cool. So why don't we go ahead now and move on to the story, which set you have already mentioned has really really captured your imagination. Yeah, I, you know, I just really enjoyed the relationships between all of the characters and, uh, you know, the, the sort of the bond that forms between, not only between the group of dogs, but also between Atari and Chief, um, who, you know, I won't spoil anything, but... We, yeah, we can avoid we spoilers, find, I think, so... We find out that he, you know, there's a connection uh, that Atari has with chief that is also you know similar to his connection with that he has with spots for various reasons um but you know the relationship that forms between these two characters who cannot understand uh each other at all i mean yep you know he obviously um we have chief who's a dog and and, and atari who's a human and and what's speaking japanese so you know we as the audience a lot of us don't even know what Atari is saying most of the time. Although I think Wes Anderson makes a good point. He said in interviews that even though you don't understand what the Japanese characters are saying, you also kind of do. Like you can you can figure out in a lot of moments. Yeah, and um, and the moments where you can't, they the do gist. they do translate it. So exactly, yeah, um, they they do have subtitles. But you know the 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 bond that forms between these characters. I think it really, you know, in some ways, it's a typical human dog bond. Um, you know, because humans and dogs don't understand each other. Um, but I don't know. I, f- I just felt like it was re- rendered in a really like tender way. Um, and I, you know, I was thinking about it with respect to Ready Player One, the movie we talked about last time. Like, I think that the relationship between these two characters who we don't even understand, like a dog and a person who we don't even understand what he's saying, is. Ten times more emotionally involving than any of the relationships in Ready Player One. That's a that's, um, that's a bit that's a bit tough. I don't I don't know if I'd agree with that, but oh, you don't agree? With that. Okay. Uh, I don't know if I'd say but, ten times. It definitely is more, but like. I mean, I well, I wasn't. Well, we won't. You know. Yeah, yeah we, we can leave, we can leave that. We'll, we can leave. We'll that. let the dead bury the dead. But, um, <laughs> yeah. I, I was not emotionally invested in the relationships in that movie at all. Oh, that's—I mean, um, I was—I'm more emotionally, certainly, am more emotionally invested in these relationships. Yeah. But I think that I was a little bit less negative on on uh, um, the relationship between Olivia Cook and uh, Ty Sheridan in that movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, so I mean, you know, all all of the relationships uh, between the characters, and even though you know the plot is very like it involves, it's very sciencey and, and you know, it's kind of technical and stuff. Uh, I didn't feel like I was really at a distance at any moment. Um, yep. And so, you know, I, and I, you know, I appreciated too sort of the, the plot of, of Chief and how he is sort of this outsider 
because um, he's a mutt as compared to the other dogs who, you know, all come from pretty strong backgrounds. Um, and so him coming to terms with sort of, you know, who he is and actually, you know, realizing that he too can make a difference. And there's, there's a great moment towards the end of the movie where he, well, I won't spoil it. Well, I'll, 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 brief spoiler where he says, it's just a line that I really enjoyed where he, um, after they have found spots and he and spots and Atari are in a boat and you find out that, uh, spots and, uh, chief, chief, sorry, chief, um, are brothers. And, uh, chief asks, was I, well, well, spot says something like I was 10, 10 minutes older than you. And chief says, was I the runt of the litter? And he goes, not anymore. Yeah. And that, I thought it was a really perfect line. line. Like, that was my favorite line of the whole movie. Um, cause I, it, I don't know. It, it really, it was a very sort of like, it, it, it hit, it hit you in the feels. Um, yep. cause it just shows you how far chief had come and you know, that he was able to accomplish what the others probably wouldn't have thought he was able to accomplish him being a mud. So I was really drawn in by that aspect of the plot as well. Yeah. I think that I'm a little bit less enchanted with the plot than you are. And I'll get into why that is in a second. Um, but overall, I think that to kind of connect the plot with the characters, you know, these characters are really engaging. We've talked about that already, but the plot it feels so natural, like this. Like there's, there's nothing that feels forced about the story. You know, we, you know, we might talk about. I mean, we've talked about in the past about how, how I'm thinking of Tomb Raider in particular, of recent example, where like the plot is so forced in the movie. Like the, these things just are lucky to occur, and therefore it makes it happen or whatever. And even in the moments where, okay, clearly this is what's driving the plot forward, it feels natural. It feels like that's not surprising to me that this happened. And it doesn't feel like this is just a device for the plot to be move, to to move forward. And I and when and I feel that way oftentimes with Wes Anderson films. And I think that it's part of his craft. And I think that he does such a good job, you know, work, working with you, you know the his team of writers. I know he isn't. I guess he does. He he does write all of his movies himself, doesn't he? So yeah, uh, I believe so. Yeah. yeah, he. I guess he just does such a good job crafting his stories. And as I've already mentioned, realizing them on the screen, that it feels so seamless. And the plot developed so naturally. I think that I wasn't super engaged in the premise of this movie. Like, I, 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 I couldn't say that I was immediately invested. Like, to me, it's such a strange thing. Like, it's such a strange concept to be, you know, having this kind of open floor debate about exiling dogs. And, like, I mean, I, I get the whole, like, flu, uh, the dog flu virus thread. And, you know, maybe there's also some, like, added you know, history, political commentary, I think definitely like, you know, just from, from the, from this whole idea, I, I think that you, you can uh, analogize it to a lot of things that are going on in our modern political and uh, landscape to an extent. Yeah. I don't disagree with that. I think that it, it definitely, it definitely serves a purpose, but it's just not one that immediately engaged me in it. And it took me a little while to get into this movie, to be honest. I, I wasn't immediately engaged. I didn't, like, I didn't immediately find, like, Atari Kobayashi endearing either as a character. Oh, we talked about the dogs a little bit. But I I never really felt engaged with him, to be honest. I'm not sure I ever connected with him throughout the movie. And, I mean, it sounds like you had a different experience. But the dogs, however, I, I, I do feel engaged with. And, and I think that whenever the plot pushed forward with the dogs, so, like, whether it's the relationship between Atari and chief or between Atari and the dogs or the dogs with each other. Those were moments that were good, but it's the moments where like Atari kind of took the front and center role. I just found him to be kind of annoying 
and I didn't particularly love him. And I get he's a kid, right? And you don't fully understand what's going on because you can't understand all the words that he's saying. And I get that that's part of the plot. But I just, in some ways, found him to not be that great of a character. And I think I'm talking about what I would say is like the weakest point of this movie. And the moments of the plot that try to develop him like aren't particularly interesting to me. Yeah, I don't know. I just think there is a lot of... Uh, it, for me, it works because they were able to... Um, dredge up a lot of sympathy for him, you know, through sure. his backstory. Um, sure. I think, and, I think that's, you know, I think the, that's fair. The backstory and the relationship between him and Spots and sort of how, yep. you know, they were kind of both outsiders in the household of Mayor Kobayashi. Yep. Um, and so I, I was won over that way. I understand maybe what you're saying about him being a little annoying in parts, uh, but I think that he softens as a character as the movie goes on and as he forms more of a bond with yeah Re- rel- relative to the beginning absolutely i think that he, it, it's tough because brian cranston's as chief is one of my, is probably my favorite character in the movie and i yeah. think that to have him paired up through most of the film i mean that's not a spoiler like that like the like he's going like atari's going on this journey with the dogs and chief is kind of the main dog that he's interacting with um like i found it nice because it did like like i think as you mentioned it kind of softens atari's character and atari gets more likable over time but i think on a more like if we if we if we zoom out and look at a more absolute scale like even atari at the end of the movie still like isn't i still find him to like be not that great of a character even if he is a better character than he was at the beginning now that being said i do want to say that's like not my biggest complaint with the plot of this movie and my biggest complaint comes with uh it's something that we've talked about off air before in other movies particularly like uh, like Wind River, for example, from last year, is that I really found this, it's just very strange that Wes Anderson sets up this like kind of like white saviorist plot of how you have, I'm forgetting her name right now, but the person here. I can't he, remember it either. But yeah, Greta Gerwig's character. character. Uh, Tracy, Tracy, Tracy Walker, I believe is her name. Uh, yeah, I, I found it just very strange and entirely unnecessary for a white girl from the United States to be the one who like, pushes the Japanese people forward into, like, not eradicating dogs. Like, it really bothered me, actually. Like, quite a yeah, bit. Yeah, I, uh, I definitely empathize with that. You know, I think that maybe Wes Anderson had in mind that, you know, because a lot of the, you know, the major characters are in this movie are, are outsiders in some way. I mean, you, you know, Atari yeah. is an outsider in Kobayashi's household. Chief is an outsider among the group of dogs. And so Greta Gerwig's character obviously is an outsider in, in the school. She's the only, you know, white character in the school. Uh, so it's kind of, yeah. um, it, you know, it, he's kind of trying to say, well, look, look at what these outsiders can actually contribute. But yeah. I mean, I don't think it was intentional. He does it in a very tone-deaf way. I, I agree with, you know, the character, the Greta Gerwig character. And so I think that, too, is probably the one thing that kept me from calling this movie a total bullseye. Um, but at the same time, I, you know, I think that the Japanese characters are certainly well-developed. And, uh, you know, like, like I said earlier, you can understand what they're saying, even if, Sure. They don't always translate it. Sure. And I, and I think that it's it's strange to me. I think tone deaf is a good way to put it because I, I don't get the impression that Wes Anderson is trying to say like, all right, like Japanese people need white people to explain to them what's like how to get by in life in, in a more humane way or whatever. But I do think it's like an unfortunate natural consequence of like uh, just not thinking through your decisions because there I think there are plenty of ways where you could have still in, in, like imparted an outsider view of things and still have them save the day and it not be like, a white person. That's just my yeah. perspective. Uh, I mean, 
I, I do want to say that I still liked the majority of this movie, and I was just sort of at, at the end, I was just like, but, like, why does this person exist in this movie? Like, she, like she doesn't need to exist in this movie at all. Yeah, I, it was, I, I agree, it was a little bit of a, a random character, and although I did like some of what she brought to the movie, uh, I think that it could have easily been substituted for a Japanese character. Sure. I don't want to harp on it too much longer than we already have. Um, is, is there anything else you'd like to add about the plot of the movie or any of the characters, the relationships, uh, before we kind of maybe take a macro-level view and talk about it in the in the pantheon of Wes Anderson? Uh, not really. I said my piece. I think I, most of it connected with me, except for you know what we just talked about was the one thing which I thought kept me a little bit at arm's length. For sure. All right. So let, let's 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 zoom out. Let's talk about this and, and where this maybe ranks in, in the Wes Anderson films uh, that we've seen. Granted, I'll raise my hand and say that my film knowledge of Wes Anderson is a little bit limited, but uh, I'd love to hear your perspective on where this falls for you. I suspect not above Moonrise Kingdom, as you've already pointed out. But uh, yeah. So you know the way I think about it, and I have seen most of Wes Anderson's movies. Um, they're really, I guess there there are four movies of his that I really enjoy, including this one. Um, so. Moonrise Kingdom, for me, is his best, but I think this movie ranks alongside the other two very comparably, which are Rushmore and The, the Life Aquatic with Steve Zizou, uh, which is actually not one of a lot of people's favorite Wes Anderson movies. I think a lot of people are probably going to be very confused about my rankings because I you know, didn't like The Royal Tenenbaums or Grand, Buda- Grand Budapest Hotel and some of these movies, which everyone pretty much loves out of Wes Anderson's canon. And, you know, I don't I don't know exactly why they didn't connect with me. Maybe, you know, some of what I was talking about earlier with characters being kind of self-absorbed in some of his movies. Uh, but I think that Isle of Dogs definitely ranks comparably with, um, with Life Aquatic and with Rushmore in the sense of balancing their humor with a lot of heart as well. Um, and, of course, going along with the exceptional craftsmanship that Wes Anderson brings to every movie. Yeah, I I mean, in, in the films that I've seen, I, I think that this might, I'd have, it'll be interesting to see when I see this movie again, and I think that I will see this movie again, uh, I want to at least, it'll be interesting to see where it does shake out, because right now it is, I think it is my least favorite of the three that I've seen, which, uh, as I already mentioned, are Moonrise Kingdom and Grand Budapest Hotel, um, but Moonrise Kingdom sits above the other two pretty substantially, where I think that Grand Budapest Hotel and this movie kind of sit more side by side. It sounds like I was a bigger fan of Grand Budapest Hotel than you were, which well, is... you're not alone. A lot, most people were. That's true. Yeah, and and I mean that is also his. It's been his commercially most successful movie. I think that that's yeah. the one exception to the to the, the movies that Wes Anderson makes aren't making very much money because I think that movie made quite a bit, like probably close to like 175 million at the box office, which is pretty good. Um, and I believe it was Oscar nominated as well. It definitely was Oscar nominated. I don't know if it won anything, but it definitely was Oscar nominated. Well, though I've. Now that I think about it, Moonrise Kingdom was also Oscar nominated, I believe. Yeah, I'd have to do a little research to see if Grand Budapest Hotel won anything, but it definitely—I know, yeah—it was definitely up for original I think screenplay. It won some technical, like maybe costumes or something like that. Yeah, and it definitely, and it definitely was nominated for like best original screenplay and stuff like that. So, yeah. Um, anyway, yeah, I think that for me, it's kind of on the lower end, but I, I of the movies that I've seen, I think very highly of all of them. So it's kind of it's kind of tough to compare them relatively when we're, when we're also talking about it's a really good movie. Cool. All right. So wrapping up here, what was your favorite scene from this movie? I, I know that I don't know if there's one that sticks out for you or not, but uh, there is. Yes. A, yeah, and I've ahead. been dying to talk about it. We'll talk about it. This moment. Let's um, hear it. It's actually not even really a scene. It's like 45 seconds of this movie. That's totally fine. But I went, I went to see this movie with a friend of mine who is a huge Wes Anderson fan. And 
I looked at her when this moment was happening, and I literally just said out loud, that was amazing, after the end of this 45 seconds. And it's a scene where a chef is making sushi, uh, a poison sushi, um, to be served to a particular character in the movie. And just the way that the scene is shot, like that the, the process of him making the sushi is crafted by Wes Anderson was like unbelievably mesmerizing. And I read somewhere afterwards uh, that it took him eight months to film this one 45 second scene of some guy making sushi. But it was like, honestly, I'm not sure that I've ever been so taken my, had my breath taken away by a moment in a Wes Anderson movie. And it, you know, it's not a movie. It's not a uh, moment which might immediately come to your mind. Cause it's just a guy making sushi, but like the unbelievable craftsmanship and the way that just the way that the, this, the moment is shot was like, whoa for me yeah that i remember that scene it, it stuck out in my mind as well and it's and you know if you're not really paying attention if you're not really kind of into the more like nerdy film making aspects of it it might go like you just said you know kind of unnoticed but but now i've told you about it so pay attention and be blown away yeah exactly 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 uh to to be different uh i i will pick a different scene i i kind of love just i just love chief a lot <laughs> and I think that you've, you've actually already mentioned the scene, so we don't have to um, talk about it too much more. But when they have escaped from the Megasaki, I don't even know what they're called, like police, I guess it's police, I'm not even sure. And they're sliding down like the water tubes and they're having the conversation about run to the litter. That scene, right. really, that scene really sticks out to me because as you perfectly described, it hits you in the feels. And, you know, even if even if none of the characters resonate with you in this movie, like that moment, I, I just don't know how that doesn't hit you. Because um, it, it just really, it strikes so well at your core. Uh, you know, we all have differing degrees of self-doubt and uh, insecurities. And I think that that sort of question, uh, it just really resonated with me. And, it, and that moment sticks out with me. Sticks out to yeah, me. I agree. That, mo- that moment and the sushi moment were like my two favorite little moments in this movie yeah there's no like one like broader scene that really sticks out in my mind it's, yeah, it's I think the moment the I think that's close together really nicely like yeah. overall like there you don't really get the, there's not really a, a stark yeah. distinction between different scenes yeah and i think that's true for a lot of wes anderson i don't think that's unique to isle of dogs yeah cool all right let's put us let's put a score if we can on this one what what would you give isle of dogs in terms of uh our score out of 10 I'm giving it an 8.8. I really enjoyed it, uh, other than the little bit of tone deafness in, uh, involved with Greta Gerwig's characters. Um, this is uh, probably end up being my top animated movie of this year. Um, I, I really uh, was satisfied from beginning to end, and maybe it was five minutes too long, but it's not as long <laughs> as most movies, for me at least. This movie's I, I will, okay. I will say that this movie does hit triple digits, just barely. It's 101 minutes, so it's not good enough for you. But uh, <laughs> well, you know, you know how I am. Yeah, I, I actually do. I actually do agree with you. I think there, there, there is actually one scene that I felt was very unnecessary uh, in this movie. But we don't have to quibble with that. I'm giving it an 8.0. Um, still a very strong movie. I think that it is absolutely worth seeing. And you know, in spite of my lack of connection with Atari, uh, for, at least for the you know, opening portion of the movie, and then also, as you've put it, the tone deafness of Tracy Walker, played by Greta Gerwig, I think that uh, that that knocks it down a bit, but it's a, it's a fantastic film for me, and Wes Anderson is, is cool. And also, not to take anything away from Greta Gerwig's performance, because I actually think she does a really good job voicing this character. 
Yeah, agreed. I agree. I, I think that it's hard to go wrong with the voice acting, and that's why this movie is... I mean, to, to me, like, the voice acting and Wes Anderson's filmmaking are what make this movie. And, you know, the story is cool at times, but it's it's the other things that do the work. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that should just about wrap up our discussion of Isle of Dogs. Let's take a short break. And when we return, we'll be talking about the next exemplar in the nouveau horror thriller genre. I don't even really know how to describe it. But uh, the, joining the likes of Don't Breathe and Get Out, and that is A Quiet Place. We'll be right back. Welcome back for part two of today's episode of Some Like It's Got. The next movie on our agenda is the third movie by John Krasinski as a director, and that is A Quiet Place. Clocking in at Scott's preferred double-digit minute movie length, A Quiet Place debuted last weekend on April 6th to both critical and audience acclaim, making over $50 million in its opening weekend in the U.S., and I believe it's continued with another strong weekend over this past one. A Quiet Place stars John Krasinski and Emily Blunt, married in real life, as Lee and Evelyn Abbott, respectively, and is set in a post-apocalyptic 2020, where creatures who hunt only by sound have wiped out a large portion of the human population, leaving surviving families to live in mostly silent conditions. The movie opens with the Abbots and their three children scavenging a drug, score, a drug store for some medicine for one of their boys, Marcus, played by Noah Jupe, who was sick, and culminates in a fateful decision by their deaf daughter, Reagan, played by real-life deaf child actress Millicent Simmons, and giving their other son, Bo, a toy NASA rocket ship, only for him to then loudly play, play, play with it and be killed by one of the alien creatures. The rest of the film takes place a year later, as the Abbots prepare to bring a new child into the world and still struggle with the loss of Bo and the ever-strenuous conditions of the world in which they live. Scott, if I'm not mistaken, you're a big horror thriller fan, especially of titles like Don't Breathe that started this kind of new branch of intellectual horror thriller movies so i'd love to start by just getting your high level impressions of a quiet place yeah so i've said this before on the show that i think that this we are in a golden age for horror um and you know you mentioned don't breathe but you know it follows obviously is a movie i've gushed about before yep other movies like the witch um you know is is another example and and you know last year i had three horror movies in my top 11 movies of the year um, with Raw, Happy Death Day, and Get Out, which, of course, ended up being nominated for Best Picture, um, which is, you know, pr- probably the first horror movie to ever be nominated for Best Picture. No, I mean, um, there's... Oh, I mean, the horror movie has won Best Picture before. Silence, Silence of the Lambs. I count that as more of a psychological thriller. But, um, sure. but yeah, I mean, you know, there, you, there are debates to be had about whether certain movies are horror movies. We'll save um, that We'll save I that mean, for a discussion you, topic sometime. Yeah. <laughs> you could say Schindler's List was a horror movie, but... Um, sure. But, uh, so, so, you know, I, when I saw, I heard about A Quiet Place, when I saw the reviews it was getting, um, I was all in, you know, I thought, here we go, here's another example, um, it, you know, here's, here's another movie that's going to fit right along with, you know, those other movies which I love, um, and I think for the most part it does, um, like, on a suspense level, there were, I mean, I've, I've not seen a movie in a long, long time that has such sustained suspense throughout the entire movie yeah. um, like this movie has. And I think, you know, a lot of it does come from just the general premise of the movie and the fact that, you know, it's pretty much, every, there, there's very little sound going on in this movie. Yeah. Um, and you know that every single sound that anyone makes is a threat. 
sort of in the same way it, it, it follows, one of the things I loved about what it did is that it turned every single character into a threat because you didn't really know who was, you know, who was the person following um, at, a, at a, you know, at a specific time in the movie. Um, so I think that, you know, the premise on its own, um, you know, creates some very suspenseful moments. But even still, you know, this is what Roger Ebert would have called a bruised forearm movie because you just want to grip the arm of the people sitting next to you um, because it's so suspenseful. Unfortunately, I didn't know either of the people sitting next to me, so I think they were a little weirded out about why I was grabbing their forearms. But um, We won't talk about uh, that, though. <laughs> <laughs> I may, may have a restraining order against me now. But um, So on a suspense level, I think that this movie is pretty exceptional. Yeah. Um, this like, movie dials it, it up. It, it, this movie awesome. dials it up to ten really early and does not does not let up ever. I think. Yeah, it, I mean, it, 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 there are moments where it reaches Hitchcockian heights as far as suspense, and that is high praise. But I think this movie earns it. Um, now there are some there are some minor quibbles which I do have with the plot, um, and we'll yep. get into that when we get into spoiler territory. Yep. I don't think this is a perfect movie by any uh, stretch of the imagination. I don't think that it bests movies like Don't Breathe or It Follows, um, but. I think just the sheer visceral impact of this movie uh, takes it a long way. And I think that it is a real credit to writer-director John Krasinski, um, who I think, uh, you know, does a great job um, and with, a, with a very unique premise. And, it, you know, it really it plays on our senses, too, as the audience, which I think is something that these movies have in common. Well, you know, I'm thinking about Don't Breathe in particular in the way that that movie, you know, is all, all centers around a, a blind character, and you know the fact that these people break into a blind man's house. And so a lot of the suspense, a lot of the scares, come from you know the sensory limitations of this character. And in this, in, in, in a sense, we have the same thing with uh, the daughter in, in a quiet place. Yeah, I didn't even know what any of the characters' names were honestly until you said. Yeah, I don't think they really. I, I only knew that their last names were Abbott because of the mailbox. I don't, I'm not sure that they say the characters' names in the movie ever. Maybe Bo, maybe Bo, who's the son who dies. But, uh, yeah, I, I didn't know it either. I'm going completely off of, you know, just doing research since then. But yeah, Reagan, I mean, I thought it, one of the things that to this point that you're making, I really like about the film is when the movie takes Reagan's perspective, a lot of the times it has all the audio go out. And I think that's a really, I mean, it's such, an, it's such a simple and easy thing because it puts you more in her shoes. Obviously, you know, most people, I'm going to go out and live and say the majority of people who go and see this movie probably aren't deaf. And I think it's I think it's a nice touch to add that element to immerse the viewer more into the movie. And I think... Well, yeah, and I, go ahead. In, in general, I just appreciated the way that the movie uses... I mean, most of the communication in this movie takes place by Sign ASL, ASL yeah. and there's a lot of subtitles as well. Like, And so for John Krasinski to make what is ostensibly a very mainstream horror movie, but, you know, to force people to read subtitles and to, you know, appreciate these characters who are co- communicating in a different language, um, yeah, I think it's, it's a real credit to him. Like, I saw someone on Twitter saying, look, you know, all the, everyone is going to see A Quiet Place, and it's a movie where, you know, people communicate via ASL and there's subtitles throughout the entire thing. So why can't we have more mainstream movies with subtitles? Um, yep. So I, I appreciate what he does in that uh, regard as well. So maybe it will lead to more foreign movies getting um, recognition, mainstream recognition as well. Yeah, I think I think it's that argument is tough. I mean, I, I wholeheartedly agree with you. I, I wish that we got... Well, I'm not saying that it will. I'm just saying I hope that it will. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, I 100% agree with that. I'd love to get more, like, well, I shouldn't say that. I hope that we get wider releases of foreign films that we just, like, don't get that much exposure to. I, I will say that I do think it's different um, in terms of, like, forcing subtitles in to movies that are, like, foreign films, quote-unquote, just because, like, you know, this is this is an American film intended for an American audience, most of whom are not fluent in American Sign Language, and I get that, you know, I mean, are people going to go watch this movie if there isn't, or if there aren't subtitles in this movie? I don't know, but, like, foreign film, like, you know, it's made for a different audience, I guess. So I, I get that, I, I don't think that it's going to necessarily, I don't, I don't want to have to tell foreign filmmakers that they have to subtitle their movies to get them uh, in the U.S. That being said, I it is difficult for me to go see a foreign film if I literally have no idea what's being said. Well, yeah, and I mean, I think people are just hesitant to see any movie that has subtitles. Uh, sure, sure. Because sure. People, it takes you out of it. For whatever reason, they don't want to read when they go to the movies. Um, <laughs> sure. I remember, I mean, but that being said, like, one of my favorite movies from a few years ago was Elle, which is a French film. It did have subtitles exactly, when I saw yeah. it. yeah, there are some great foreign movies that would be really successful in America, in my opinion, if they didn't, if they, if they weren't in subtitles, if they weren't in a different language. Sure. Um, focusing back in on A Quiet Place and the sensory immersion of the film, I think that, I agree, the, the subtitles are a nice touch, it... it in some ways, it, it really makes you, not in some ways, I think in every way, it makes you connect more with these characters and how they have to, they have had to adapt to, okay, sure, maybe they had an advantage because one of, for the kids, one of their sisters is deaf, for the parents, their child is deaf. There's, you know, they, they have been forced to, before this, to adopt this method of communication, but, you know, having to lean even harder into it since, you know, the, whenever it is that these, uh, these creatures uh, evolved or landed on Earth. It's unclear what the backstory is of them, I think, unless I'm wrong there. Uh, and I, well, just, that, I just missed something. Since you brought it up, I'll just say that was one of my issues. Um, is okay. That I think that, I don't know, this movie walks a line when it comes to how much backstory it reveals because I don't think that it needs to reveal any backstory. Like, personally, I think that it's fine for there to be no backstory for us to just have this, you know, standalone situation, uh, you know, with these people and these creatures. Um, but also I think it could have gone heavy backstory if it wanted, but it, and it, but what it does is it like teases the backstory. Like we have these early in the movie, we have these like newspaper articles, which are yep. talking about, Oh, all these people are dead in New York city and blah, blah, blah. And all this stuff. And you know, you see John Krasinski trying to communicate with people in other countries. Yeah. Um, and there's all the time. Element. Ham radio. Time is told uh, by since the creatures like, or whatever happened, like this is like day 89 was like the first scene and then like everything else like yeah. day 400 something so it's like it, to your point i think that this movie is, is benchmarking itself on a you know timeline that is relative to the backstory of these creatures and we never get any of that yeah and and the same thing goes for the creatures and i'll talk about this again more when we get into spoilers but uh you know i didn't i don't i don't feel like i got enough of an idea about you know what these creatures are like and what they're limitations are and sort of how they work exactly because there were sure. times when i thought oh i understand you know what the deal is with these creatures and then they would do something which i didn't really understand um and i was like this doesn't seem consistent with what we know about the, the creatures but like i said we can get into that maybe a little bit later um, yeah. yeah yeah why don't why don't on that note why don't we go ahead and talk a little bit more about uh some of the characters and then we'll get into the spoilers but I'd love to talk about you know the Abbots because they are really the only characters in the movie. Particularly, we'll start with John Krasinski and Emily Blunt, who play 
I believe it, Lee and Evelyn Abbott. What did you think of their characters, their performances as these characters? How did they strike you? Well, I honestly, I think that the acting is probably going to be a uh, an element of this movie that gets overlooked. And that's a shame because I think it's really, really strong. Um, and I think that the degree of difficulty of acting in a movie like this is so much higher than in a lot of movies, um, certainly in a lot of genre movies, um, because it relies so much on facial expression and body language agreed um and i think emily blunt in particular yeah um, she's the star of that amazing yeah uh amazingly well i mean and you know the fact that her character is pregnant which for me just adds on like a whole another layer, layer of suspense because sure. there's sort of this ticking time bomb of you know what's going to happen when she has to have this baby because you can't have a silent birth really um, yeah, and I mean, I mean and, and then to that point, I think that I mean that is the plot of the movie, right? Like yeah. that them dealing with the reality that they have made, they have decided. I mean, I don't know if, what their parenting decisions were around this, but like <laughs> they they are bringing another child into the world, uh, and I think that the anxiety that and we experienced, God bless them for it. Yeah, we the anxiety, the anxiety that I experienced. I can only speak for myself in this movie. Almost entirely stemmed from you know this looming baby that's coming it does i mean yeah that does come in the movie i don't think that's a spoiler um yeah yeah and i think that also there's a really interesting dynamic between the adult characters and the kid characters in this movie because in a lot of ways the kids in in many moments in this movie are more of the adults or at least it seems like they understand this world a lot better and that's because i mean you know you do have this dynamic of like the adults probably they remember the world before it became like this and so they have those memories to look back on it so in that um since they probably are clinging to this sort of false hope that maybe one day they can return to you know more idyllic past whereas these kids were probably brought up in this world have never really known anything other than this world yeah Um, and like there's one moment in particular like when john krasinski goes to take his son out like out into the wilderness yeah and he says, don't worry, there's nothing to be afraid of. And his son says, what are you talking about? Like, of course we're, there's stuff to be afraid of. Like, these creatures are out there. And, it, you know, there's sort of this delusion, I think, on a lot, on the char- on the uh, part of the adult characters, at least early in the movie, um, of, like, you know, not really, maybe not really coming to terms with what this world is all about and the fact that this is their reality right now. And maybe that speaks to the fact that you know, they're having a child, like, which probably isn't a very wise decision in this world. Maybe they think, you know, maybe they're still clinging to some hope that we can get, they can get back to an more idyllic past. And I think that a lot of, you know, John Krasinski's character in particular, the development of this movie, uh, the development of him in this movie is, it, you know, it's all about whether he's going to be able to protect his kids in the way that a parent is supposed to. Yeah. I mean, I think the movie in that sense, came off very heavy-handed. I mean, there's literally a line in the movie that was in the trailer, too, I believe, that was, who are we if we can't protect them? I mean, that was, like, the the most heavy-handed line for a movie yeah, full that exactly. only had, like, a handful of lines in it. I was like, why why was that necessary to say? <laughs> and, and it, like, as much as this movie kept me guessing, and I think the plot escalates in such an amazing way, Agreed. like, just slowly, like, adding different complications into the mix like in such a, in such a way until it's you know it builds to that point which is like you know the point you want at any point you get in every hitchcockian movie really which is which is where you look at the main character and you say 
how on earth are they going to get out of this? Like, there's no way that they can get out of this situation. Um, so I think that the movie, like, brilliantly does that. But the actual resolution of the conflict is so predictable. Like, the movie, as you said, it telegraphs exactly where it's headed, um, at least in terms with the John Krasinski character in particular is what I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, and so, I, you know, when that moment came, I wanted a more clever resolution with his character, um, and I didn't get that because, you know, I, like you said, it is heavy-handed. I think that it really telegraphs where that character in particular is headed. Sure, and I also, I mean, in some ways, very quite explicitly, we'll get to that in a moment, but I do want to touch briefly more on Emily Blunt. We mentioned how amazing she is in this movie, and I think that she is the real superstar of this film for me. And her performance as a pregnant woman, as you've already mentioned, is fantastic, and I think that her, you know, you know when you get her scenes, and I'm thinking of, uh, well... This might be a spoiler. Maybe I'll hold off on that. Uh, so I, essentially, I just whenever the focus is entirely on her in the movie, and you know, maybe there may or may not be her some of her kids around or not, but like you just you everything becomes even more visceral than the movie already is, and it's not because anything that John Krasinski as a director is doing. It's because Emily Blunt is just so damn good at acting. <laughs> like she just really is good. And yeah, the I mean the pain and stuff that is written all over her face in some of these scenes is yeah that's what I was referring to even. next level yeah, yeah. Uh, and you know you know there's several scenes in the you know the real heart of this movie that ask a lot of her as a character yeah. and and maybe I have some problems with with some of the plot moments in those in those in, in those specific instances uh, one in particular that maybe we'll get to talk about in a second but I think that she is just outstanding I just really can't praise her enough in this movie. Cool. So why don't we also, before we, one last thing, we'll give a moment for the kid, for talking about the kids. You've mentioned them already yeah, about how yeah. they, uh, in some ways, they're more adult-like than some of the real adults in this movie. And I'd love to just dig a little bit deeper on what you thought of these performances. I'm maybe t- thinking particularly about Millicent Simmons, who plays Reagan, who is the deaf child, uh, deaf daughter. And right. and also, I mean, Noah Jupe does a pretty good job as well. Well, I mean, you say Emily Blunt was the standout for you. I mean, Millicent Simmons, to me, was the standout in this movie. Okay. Um, yeah. And... You know, that's not to take anything away from anyone else, because I did think everyone else was excellent as well. For sure. But, you know, I think the whole, with her being deaf, it adds a whole other layer to this character and a whole other layer of difficulty to this performance. Um, and I thought for a child actor, like, what she is able to pull off in this movie is pretty remarkable. And I just, I, I don't know, I, I connected with the character a lot. Um, because, you know, even, even on a greater level than uh, yeah, the son... She seems to be, like, really attuned to what's going on in this world and, and kind of is, you know, resistant to her father's attempts, like, especially with him trying to get in contact with other countries. You know, they, they talk about it at one point, and he says, you know, she says, you're never going to reach anybody, basically, and he's, he's clinging to this hope that he's going to. Um, so I think that she gives a very adult performance in this movie. Um, so for me, she was the real standout and I look forward to seeing what she does next. Yeah. You know, I thought, I mean, when I, when I was reading up on this movie a while ago now, admit when I first saw the trailers, which was a while back, I think probably, you know, late last year, I saw that the, I knew that there was like the character is apparent from the trailers that the character was deaf. Cause you can see the ear divide the, I guess the cochlear implant, uh, in the in the in the trailer, and I was like, "Oh, interesting." Now I wonder if this is just for, um, is this just for show? Like, what is like, what is this? And looking it up, and I was like, "Okay, she's a deaf actor." I, I thought it was one great that they went out of the way and didn't just cast a 
a, a you know another child actor or actress that might be already more established, more famous, more popular, um, and not deaf. And I thought it was a really good job. And, and yeah. having read up, sorry, I'll let you jump in in a second. But having read up even more on Millicent Simmons' role, not just in the acting of this movie. I mean, I agree with you; she was fantastic. Uh, she she also had a huge role, I believe, in the direction of this film. Like she advised, like she, ma- I think she was responsible for making a lot of the decisions around like communication, how they communicated. She was the person who knew ASL of the cast yeah. before the movie started. I think that it not only was she outstanding in the movie uh, in an interesting way, maybe slightly different from what you're describing. I thought it was interesting how you know, as she's a deaf character, she's more in tune with parts of this world and parts of this. Uh, you know this life that she's living but in some ways she's incredibly disconnected she doesn't she isn't able to recognize when these creatures are approaching she isn't able to recognize when there has been noise that's made loud enough to notify these creatures and she relies on the people around her in those moments to signal her and i think that that is like that sort of helplessness in that moment it it amplifies her character and i think she does a really good job of now, this sounds really dumb, but she does, like, a really good job of effectively portraying her character and her, you know, the qualities that she brings to the role in terms of, you know, it being a strong, empathetic, or, or I should say empathic performance, and also, a, you know, a realistic performance from her as a character. I'm thinking of one scene in particular where she's in the cornfield, and she just has no idea that there's one of these creatures, like, five feet away from her, and... You know, I I was just floored by how well she acted in that scene in particular. Yeah, uh, I mean, and, and my point that I wanted to make, and I think this actually goes along really well with the fact that she had a huge, huge role in this movie, or a huge role in directing this movie, is that I think it's really important that they have a deaf actress play this role. Oh, because absolutely. It really empowers deaf people. Like, absolutely. The, the plot of this movie does. Um, and I'll just say that without giving too much away. Um but so so yeah, I think that it's really important that um, we, they have a deaf actress, and so I think that that's uh, yeah. really interesting to hear. I mean, it's perfectly in line with what goes on in the movie that she yep. had a huge role in directing it as well. Yeah, and and I and I meant to point out from my earlier comment that you know not only to, and this again aligns really well with your point that it's really great that they have a deaf actress playing this role. I should have said that more explicitly. That's why I was so happy about it because it would have been really easy for them to just go out and find another child actress. And second, like. To your point about empowerment, you know, it's not just like, okay, we got a deaf actress because it's the right thing to do. Now, here's what I want you to do. Here's this thing. Like, really letting her inform them about how to best realistically convey these roles. I mean, it's just really, it was really powerful to me. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Cool. All right, let's, let's, okay, let's go full spoilers now. I know that we've been hankering to talk about in more detail some of these plot points that we're kind of tiptoeing around. But let's uh, take the gloves off. Let's talk plot. Uh, so for those of you who have yet to see A Quiet Place but are listening, just skip ahead to the next section because the rest of it from here on out is going to be spoilers. Yeah, so I'll just address what I think is maybe a, another problem that I have with this movie. Um, in addition to the fact that I think that, John, as I was, what I was alluding to earlier, um, perhaps not so subtly, was that John Krasinski's character, of course, sacrifices himself to save his children. Um, and I think that the movie telegraphs that way too much. Not only with this, you know, overarching plot of John Krasinski's character talking about how he's going to protect, he's got to protect his kids. How are we going to protect our kids? But I mean, in the fact that we literally see another character who commits suicide yeah, in yeah. the exact same way earlier in the movie. I really didn't that like that. I really didn't like that when that's what John Krasinski's character like. I, 
I figured going in that he was going to end up dying in this movie. And when it happened in the exact same way as how that guy had died earlier in the movie, granted for different reasons, I'll give him that. Like they were doing, like you said, that guy was committing suicide for no seeming purpose other than just the fact that he didn't want to be alive anymore. And John Krasinski sacrificing himself for his children. I think, but still I was like, ah, wow, that's not creative at all to like so heavy handedly foreshadow that death. Yeah. And so that was one. And then, you know, I was kind of alluding to this earlier as well, but the, the creatures themselves, I had a huge issue with. Okay. Well, I, I talked about earlier with how I didn't, um, I feel like the, it, it sort of breaks its own rules at certain parts with regards to these characters, because, you know, when I first saw the characters, it's, or the creatures, I was like, Oh, you know, they, they respond to sound. They, they pounce on whoever is, you know, creating the sound and then that's it. But then a little bit later we get, you know, the fact, basically one of these creatures stalks Emily Blunt into the ha- like through their house after she steps on the nail and perhaps one of the most satisfying moments of this entire movie like well, well done moments I will say yeah um, no it was so like ugh. in terms of like everyone in the theater I'll, I will say the theater going experience was interesting in this movie because I had a sold out theater and usually in a horror movie you have people reacting but like everyone was silent um you know, in line with the movie, um, for most of this movie, except the moment when she's coming down the stairs and you know what is about to happen, you know she's about to step on that nail. Everyone in the theater, like, was just like, you know, you, you felt everyone yeah. reel back and wait, waiting, wait for that moment. Yeah. But anyway, so the creature sort of stalks her into the house, and, you know, it, I guess I, I wasn't expecting that, um, you know, the creature had this sort of capability of, like, I, th- I thought it was kind of if the sound, if it didn't immediately hear the sound, then, you know, that was it, the end of the story. And likewise, at the end of the movie, after John Krasinski shoots himself, they go back, or, or gets, not shoots himself. Yeah, he but, screams, you know, he screams. Yeah, himself. Yeah. Uh, the others go back to the house, and the creatures show up at the house, and I couldn't really figure out why exactly that happened, because there were no other sounds, really, that were created, and nothing really that would draw the monster to this particular house. Yeah, I think it was other the truck. Than, it was the truck. the fact that the, the filmmakers, that, that John Krasinski, I guess, wanted to have the big action climax of this movie. Well, I, I think I, I will take up the movie's defense here. I had some plot, other issues with the plot in different places, but I think that that was just the truck. I think they were following the sound of the truck. Okay. Because, uh, I mean, like, they weren't driving the truck, but it was, like, rolling down the hill. I mean, I, I, maybe it wasn't noisy. Maybe it shouldn't have attracted. Because it only attracted the one, which presumably is the one that killed John Krasinski's character. And then after she fires the shotgun, the other two come. But Right, right. No, I got that. I just, I don't know. I just felt like they, they, they should have more clearly established... What yeah. the deal is with these creatures and I how agree. exactly they work. Um, yeah, I, I think it. Did, I will agree with you. I, I think it took a little bit of liberty in the final scene, getting down to the house. Yeah, like I, I think that they maybe took it a step too far in trying to, you know, like I said, have this big smash bang climax to the movie. Yeah, I mean that being said, well, I, I did like the end of the movie. I, that's what I was going to say. I, although it did kind of redeem itself in like the last minute. Oh yeah, um, it did. I thought that the, the final shot in particular is pretty great. Oh, it's pretty badass <laughs> for sure. Uh, for me to kind of, okay, first I want to say that I thought the plot was overall like pretty cohesive. I didn't, there, there are a couple holes. Uh, we've talked about uh, some that stuck out for me already, particularly the, the foreshadowing scene of John Krasinski's death with the man in the woods. I didn't love that. I thought the 
so it, it's honestly it's more the themes than the plot were really heavy handed to me. Like I didn't like I'm I mean okay yeah love love wins out over everything. I always get it. Like that's that's always going to be a theme in a movie. It's always going to come out really strongly. I'm Don't a little be such a cynic. Yeah I know I'm a little jaded because of a Wrinkle in Time has never been more heavy handed with that theme, <laughs> and I've seen that in the last couple months. But yeah like the exaggerated you know love theme it didn't get on my nerves but like it it wasn't particularly interesting to me either and i I get how like parent child relationships uh, and i'm assuming that she's probably like a young teenager i don't know like i'm I'm, like spitballing what her age is there but she's probably like 12 13 maybe a little bit older and that, that seems about right yeah like having an angsty relationship with your dad and feeling extreme guilt about, you know, the death of your brother, which, you know, you kind of caused. And I think I, I get that. At the same time, I think that, that that theme and that underlying subplot, like, didn't make this, um, like, didn't make her a, a more interesting character. It didn't make Reagan a more interesting character. It didn't make John Krasinski a more interesting dad. And I think that, like, the stubbornness of John Krasinski's character was annoying for me at times, even if I understood it. Uh, or at least, I mean, maybe I didn't understand it. I haven't been a dad in, in that situation before, but I can, I could, I could, you know, fathom it, I guess. And and so in that sense, I think that the plot, what drives the plot along for me, the, the intensity is far more interesting. And the the fear for your life, the survival instincts, those aspects of the plot are far more interesting to me than like some of the you know more character driven elements of the plot that I just described. I don't know if that resonates with you or not. I agree, especially with regards to the John Krasinski character, because I think he he was a frustrating character at times. And another moment I'll pinpoint is, I don't know, it was just kind of rang really false to me when he takes his son out into the wilderness or whatever, yeah. and they go to this waterfall. And yell, yeah. And, yeah, and he starts yelling. And I'm like, okay, look, I get it. Like, you're standing next to a waterfall. The creatures probably can't hear you yelling. Uh, and, you know, they even make a big point about that where he tells his son, like, oh, you know, if there's a louder noise, it's fine if you make a loud noise. Um, but I'm like, why are you going to take the risk that, you know, these creatures who, who you know, thrive off of people making sounds, why are you going to just scream out and take this risk that you might get killed just so you can have this cathartic moment with your son or whatever? I don't know. It, it was It rang really false to me. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to dig too deep into, like, the more negative aspects because we haven't really talked about the really positive aspects of this movie, this plot that much. Um, that being said, like, that's a moment, to your point that you kind of started and, and fleshed out more earlier about the creatures and the lack of a backstory. I'm with you. I, I'm perfectly happy sometimes with not getting any backstory. But I also yeah. just, like, fundamentally don't understand these creatures at all. Like, I okay, yeah, they, they use sound to track, you know, humans and they attack humans, but, like, like like what they are they? Don't have the, they yeah they obviously don't have the perception of they obviously can't see because that was one of yeah. the things i was wondering too but like the moment with yeah they can't see they can't like smell they can't yeah i mean i don't know like what what's another example like they can't like what what are they are they eating humans like what are they eating like it looks like they just jump on top of them and just dismantle them well yeah i mean you see these huge holes in the bodies that we see in the movie yeah so so it doesn't seem like they're eating them. I'm just really confused about like what it is. Yeah, that was that was a major hole for me. But as far as the more pl- positive aspects, um, you know, kind of what I got at earlier, like I think that the way the movie escalates and the way it introduces new complications. I mean, you know, from the beginning, you have the complication of uh, the fact that Emily Blunt's character is pregnant. 
Yeah. Um, so you know you have that all along, but then the little wrenches that it throws in the the you know the, to the plot. You have the thing with the, her stepping on the nail. You have the fact that her water decides to break when um, she when, when John Krasinski and her and her son have are gone, are gone and yeah. are away from the home. So she's got to figure out. She's got blood seeping out of her foot. She's she. Uh, you know, is about to have a baby, and she's got to figure out how to, you know, signal to them that help. There's a creature in the house. Yep. Um, and by the way, can we talk about the childbirth for a moment? Because that has to be the quickest childbirth in film history. Oh, yeah. So that was actually my least. That was that was what I was talking about earlier when I talked about the biggest hole in the plot for me. Was just like, all right, she got from the. I get the fireworks. Right, the fireworks yeah, are distracting. Opened, whatever. He, but the bathtub to the shower. Exactly. And he opens the shower, and there's the. And I'm like, oh, okay. She's cut the umbilical cord with what? (laughs) I mean, did like what did she cut the umbilical cord with? Like, I I know I'm like diving deep here, but these were thoughts like ran through my mind in this scene. No, I think that's that's very fair because I I had similar thoughts. But uh, you know, like I said, the the way that it ratchets up the tension by just these these little small things. I mean, you know, you see the nail early in the movie when it happens, and you you know, you know it's coming. Yeah. Sort maybe you sort of know that maybe this is going to come back, but you know when it does, like I said, it's such a satisfying way, like because you're like, oh yeah, I remember that now. Like uh, I don't know, I, I found that very satisfying, even though obviously it was imposing pain on a major character. Um, yeah, but I also thought yeah, the silo so, scene was really good. Which one? When they're on top of the silo. Right. Right. Yeah. The kids and they fall into the corn. I guess the corn silo. Yeah, that's and then you know that's another complication that comes up is, you know, the parents are at the home, but the kids are no longer there. Yeah, exactly. And then, even at one point, the two kids are separated from each other as well. Yep. And also, you have the fact that there's this newborn baby in the world who you know is going to just start crying his head off because he's a newborn baby, and that's what they do. So yep. you know that adds. Uh, yeah, it was just you know they, they really uh, they really like a truly a social yeah truly a social commentary on parenting. I mean, I think that's what the... I, no, no, I'm not kidding. Like, I think that's what the yeah, movie no, is intended no, you're, to be. You're right, yeah. Yeah, no, I think this movie is intended to be a social commentary on, like, the anxiety of parenting. Uh, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, which I can't personally yeah. speak to, thankfully, uh, at this point in my life. So, <laughs> uh, I'll, I think we're going to have to leave. I think people should still have children, despite what this movie uh, is hinting <laughs> at. Yeah, maybe... I think... Well, I'm not going to make a value statement on this, but I think this, this movie might be saying... Uh, be smart when you're having kids like think about your situation but uh, I'm not going to make a value judgment on that anyway I think that it was good to point out the plot I think that yeah the the, the way you describe it I think it's so it's so perfect is that the, the way this plot escalates so cle- like never it never feels forced it feels very clever you, you go from one moment to the next of just doing what you need to do to survive and the reality is that like there's no perfect outcome here and what you had to do in this moment to survive is going to cause you to need to do something else in the next moment to survive like having exactly. to send having to send his son Marcus I believe is his name off to shoot off the fireworks so that the creatures will get out of the house and away from Emily Blunt's character. You know, that's great. Emily Blunt's safe now, but, you know, oh, shit. Like, now this creature and is out of the house, and also the son is out there in the cornfields by himself. So, it, it, like you say, right. it escalates, and it feels so natural that way, and I love it. Yeah, and the final moment, even, when she decides to shoot the... Which, by the way, uh, I thought it was crazy that at the end of the movie, here's these creatures coming right at her daughter, and yet, you know, she's just basically about to, you know, let the the the, uh, the creature kill her, 
her daughter or whatever, like even though she's holding a shotgun, until the daughter comes in clutch with the whole cochlear implant. <laughs> comes in clutch. Thing. But then that when the creature comes back up, she just shoots it in the head and it died. And I'm like, why didn't you just do that earlier? Okay, yeah, no, so I actually have an answer to this, and, and this is easy to slip by you if you don't realize it, but the so their skin is armored. So so she she like removes the armor with her with the cochlear implant because it's like yeah. screaming so it like lifts up its armor and that's uh, when okay. she shoots it and the See, the whole armor part that could have been more well explained. Well, okay, yeah. So that's subtle because it's on the whiteboard in the room. Um, and it's like explain like armor. It's like how many of them are there? Are three in the area, uh, right, things okay. like that. So it just depends on – you have to kind of pay attention to get that. But I totally – like from your perspective, if you didn't know about the armor, I totally agree that it's weird. She's just kind of chilling there with the shotgun. Uh, but, yeah, I, I take it that they have maybe tried to set traps that would kill these animals before and they've learned that they're armored. So Yeah. Yeah. That's understandable. Yeah. My only other question right before we do – we enter our little wrap-up phase here is I was really confused why – the fa- why John Krasinski's character didn't want Reagan to go downstairs into his little like office space, we'll call it, with all the, you know, the equipment he had. Yeah. I was, I, it was never clear to me. This is maybe the most. This actually might be the most. Besides the creatures, might be the most confusing part of the movie. It never was apparent to me why he didn't want her to go down there, because it seemed like she knew what he was doing down there. Well, yeah, because they do have that whole conversation about. Like, oh, you know, this is never going to work, blah, blah, blah. She's telling him that. I don't know if maybe it was just him being an overprotective father and, you know, her not wanting him not wanting her to understand sure. how deep this goes or, you know, how, how bleak the situation really is. That's probably it, yeah. Um, but, I, yeah, I, I think that maybe they, they could have explained that a little bit more. Yeah, it's, it's a small thing, not a big thing. All right, let's go ahead and wrap things up. Favorite scene from A Quiet Place? I think it's just the whole sequence prior to the childbirth with Emily Blunt in the house uh-huh. with, you know, from going from the nail to, you know, she sets off the timer in a really clever way in order to distract the monster um, yep. and, you know, leading to her in the bathtub in this horrifying moment when you can see the creature in the background. Like, that was just an unbelievable, like, sequence of sustained suspense um, and for me, that's the definitely the scene, the sequence in this movie, which had the most lasting impact. And uh, I mean, I can barely remember a sequence in a movie in a long time that was so suspenseful. Yeah, I think that's my favorite scene as well. Uh, but just to mention another scene in the movie or another moment in the movie, I'll actually go with the very last moment, the right before the credits roll. The there's the uh, the you know you just killed one of these creatures, you got two more coming your way. Pump the shotgun, amp up the volume, put that cochlear implant next to it. It was a very yeah. gratifying final moment of the film. But I agree. My favorite scene has to be the one you've just described. All right. Let's, let's give this one a rating. I, I, you know, we'll, let's see where we come out on this one. Uh, I'm going to go with an 8.4. Um, just because I think the, maybe the minor issues I had when added up together, um, take a little bit away from the overall experience of the movie. But, I mean, you know, this movie is a visceral gut punch, and it is absolutely worth seeing, and I think it lives up to all the hype that it's been getting, and I think if you're on the fence about seeing it, you should definitely go see it, even if you're not typically one to see these type of movies, because it's, it's very impactful. Yeah, and I know I mentioned this already, and I'm, I just I want to echo what you've just said, is that I'm not a huge fan of, like, I'll stomach horror films, whatever, like, I, I get through them. It's not what I would go out and normally choose to go watch personally. And I would not. I really have a hard time calling this movie a horror film. Same way I have a really hard time calling like Get Out a traditional horror. Like there's just such a different kind of horror yeah. that like 
when when I talk with another person about horror and someone's like, oh, I really don't like horror movies. I will not go watch a horror movie. I, I would I would still be like, all right, I get that. Everyone has their own tastes and has their own preferences around horror. But this movie, along with a movie like Don't Breathe, with a movie like Get Out, to some degree even It Follows, I think these are movies that are not your traditional horror movies. They're so worth going and seeing if you can stomach, you know, the the odd jump scare or, you know, because these, these movies really rely on tension and yeah. suspense more and, than, like, your traditional horror scare. And all of them go to, I think, you know, the fact that the best horror movies are the ones where it's fun to be scared. And, I mean, this movie was fun to watch. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I found myself laughing even in a couple moments, not because the movie was – not because the movie did anything wrong, but just because I was enjoying myself so much. Like, for example, the, the moment which I distinctly remember was – when Emily Blunt is in this knee-deep water, and yeah. one of the creatures goes underwater, and oh, all that was a creep! Oh my goodness, there. yeah. And as she reaches to pull the child out, like perfectly in sync, as she's pulling the child out, the creature rises out of the water, and it was just such a like, like amazing moment in the movie that like I I think I chuckled to myself because it, I I was enjoying myself so much. So yeah. I think you know when people think scary movies a lot of times they think oh this is going to give me nightmares for yeah. for weeks and weeks but that's not the type of movie that uh any of these movies are and that's not what a good horror movie does a good horror movie really where you come out of it and you say wow i just had a really good time watching that yeah i put this movie more on a plane like if you want to dial back the 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 time machine a little bit i put this movie more on like a horror movie the likes of maybe like a shutter island would be a horror movie uh, and yeah yeah i think that's yeah, again, I think I would call that more of a psychological thriller. I agree, I think yeah. semantics. Yeah, no, I, I think it is. I, I agree. This definitely lacks the psychological element, but it's more a thriller than a horror because I kind of separate those genres in my mind. Anyway, my score for this film, you gave it an 8.4. I think that's very fair. I give this film an 8.2. Uh, very good movie. I think that it's 90 minutes of your time. Like, there are five, like it's 95 minutes, 5 minutes of credit. It's 90 minutes of your time. It's so worth going and seeing. Uh, it's such a... Such a gratifying experience from beginning to end even if we both it we both have a few quibbles with it yeah cool all right i think we have thoroughly covered a quiet place and i think we both as we've already mentioned would recommend it it's really not as scary as advertised the trailers i was a little bit worried about how scary the movie would be from the trailers and uh i didn't i haven't come out of it thinking that it was as scary as the trailers had had made it seem um at least not in a way that i made it difficult to watch yeah, and there are definitely some jump scares, which I was expecting. Like, I was expecting this movie's going to have a lot of jump scares just yeah. because of the premise. Yep. But personally, I don't find those scary. I mean, the, Some people the do, though. Part, some people do. Yeah. Yeah, the scary part is just the build-up to yeah. the jump scare. And, like, you know, maybe they would do... Maybe a couple of them did make me, make me jump, but, like, that's not being scared. That's just being startled, really. At least that's my opinion. Yeah. Yeah, so maybe... Yeah, if you can handle the overwhelming intensity of some of the scenes then I'd so strongly recommend it. But let's take another short break, and when we come back, we'll be revealing what our first movie club movie will be before we talk about our discussion topic of the week, a little movie trivia schmodown, and finally some news. Back in a sec. Welcome. 
Welcome back for part three of today's Some Like It, Scott. Before we dive into our discussion topic this week, we wanted to remind our listeners that, as we discussed last time on the podcast, we'll be doing our first iteration of Movie Club on our next episode, pairing it alongside our discussion of Avengers Infinity War. If you didn't catch our last episode, every once in a while, we'll be doing something we're calling Movie Club, where we pick a movie that has been out for several or even many years and that we might have missed or we think is worth a rewatch. We'll announce the movie on the episode before we discuss it, then on the following episode, we'll discuss it. Not dissimilar to how we normally discuss movies that are currently in theaters. We may not give them a score, but otherwise, we're going to go through them pretty thoroughly uh, and give it give it the full treatment. So for our first movie club, we'll be watching a movie called Rocket Science. Scott, this movie was your idea, so why don't you quickly tell us a little about it? Yeah, so I kind of talked about this last week, but I think that this movie club is going to be maybe a, a, a vehicle for uh, us to talk about some underrated underappreciated movies that maybe we love but maybe a lot of people haven't seen or know about and i think that uh this first movie we're going to talk about is a perfect example it is uh, a movie that i absolutely adore um and it's a movie that a lot of times when people ask me for a good sort of under the radar recommendation it's always one of the first movies that i talk about um and as scott said it's called rocket science um it's from 2007 and it's directed by a guy called jeffrey blitz and it's a shame he, he really hasn't done it very much since directing Rocket Science. Um, prior to directing this movie, he directed a very, very good documentary that won a lot of acclaim called Spellbound about the National Spelling Bee um, that followed uh, several kids as they went to compete in the National Spelling Bee. So that really put him on the um, market. And then this was his next film. And for whatever reason, it, it you know, it never – well, I think there – I understand why it didn't really take off mainstream-wise. It doesn't have any big names in it. It's very quirky, um, a lot quirkier than your average coming-of-age movie. But basically the setup to the movie is that um, we have Hal Hefner. He's a uh, very awkward young teenager, played in the movie by Reese Thompson, um, who has a stun- and he has a stuttering problem. Obviously this creates a lot of issues for him. He also has issues at home. Um, but he sort of... Uh, finds maybe maybe a way out of uh, his issues when he is uh, pressured into joining the debate team by uh, the all-star debater um, at his high school, Jenny Ryerson, who's played by Anna Kendrick in a very early role of hers. Um, and uh, even though Hal shows no signs that he's going to be a good public speaker, um, Jenny uh, accosts him into becoming her debate partner. Um, and for for uh, various reasons, which uh, we'll talk about when we talk about the movie, um, but uh, and and hijinks ensue. Um, you know, it is a coming of age movie to uh, an extent, uh, but it also, like I said, it's it's a lot quirkier and just the humor in this movie. Um, I don't know if uh, everyone, it won't resonate with everyone, but like it is right up my alley. Some of the jokes in this movie just absolutely kill me. Um, and just some of the weird oddball characters that um, Hal comes into contact with throughout this movie. Um, so I just think it's an absolute gem. Um, and so I'm really excited for us to talk about it next week. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned that Jeffrey Blitz hasn't done much, and, and part of the reason maybe because this movie didn't even make a million dollars at the box office, even though it was a low budget film, it just absolutely tanked. Uh, and even it was though, critically well received. Yeah. Like, I think it was kind of a festival darling when it came out. Yeah, I mean, Roger, Roger Ebert, I was doing a little research on it. Roger Ebert gave it a three and a half out of four. I mean, you're not talking, like, this movie was well-reviewed. Its Metacritic is, like, 75. So. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. I, I, and I, I think, um, I, I'm interested to see what your thoughts on it are as well. 
Cool. Well, that's what we have in store for a couple weeks from now alongside, as I mentioned, Avengers Infinity War. And uh, so you got two weeks. Watch the movie, and uh, we'll be talking about it in two weeks' time. All right. So with that out of the way, it's time for our discussion topic this week. Scott, what did you come up with for us? So on that note, since we are talking about Avengers Infinity War next week, um, you know, we can... uh, we can haggle about what exact what, what number exactly this is this movie is in the franchise. I mean, I think you said earlier it's the nineteenth movie in the MCU. I believe um, so. Yes. But technically speaking, it is the third movie in the Avengers series, um, following the Avengers and Age of Ultron. Um, so that got me thinking about what are some of the other best third movies in a <laughs> uh, series, and I think that that's a, it's an interesting topic because you know there are a lot of movies which wear out their welcome after one movie. All the sequels kind of suck. Um, but there are also other franchises which, I mean, there, there are a lot of franchises that, that just come to mind where the first movie is really good, maybe the second movie falls off a little bit, but then they get back to it in the third movie. Um, like Mission Impossible is another example. Like, I think maybe the oh, second you did, one... You didn't like Mission Impossible 2? <laughs> no, I think that's the only one in the, the franchise which isn't very good, very good for me, but they really came back strong in Mission Impossible 3. Yep. Um, so I think this is an interesting... Topic. So, cool. uh, what what did you choose to kick us off? Yeah, so I tossed around. I took a very traditionalist approach to this. I looked at my bookshelf. I saw what movies I had, and I started thinking <laughs> about what movies I could come up with. Because man, a third movie it just it was a really interesting one to think about. I liked it, and you know, I thought about Star Wars. You know, with Return of the Jedi. Uh, I thought about Indiana Jones. We've even talked about that recently with you know the Last Crusade. Because some would definitely argue that Temple of Doom was a bit of a dip for that franchise. Well, well, that was before Crystal Skull, maybe. But yeah, we'll leave that. We'll let that one lie. Um, but I, I landed on a franchise that's very near and dear to my heart. I think it's probably the single franchise that I know better than any other out there, and that is the Harry Potter franchise. The third book not is not my favorite book in the series, but the third movie I think is probably one of the best in the movie franchise. And I think Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban is an outstanding movie. I think for what what it, what, it, what was able to be accomplished with the material is probably the best of the movies, and at least in terms of the uh, what we'll call the original seven books in the original eight movies. I think that adapting the content, that movie does the best. And I think that the atmosphere of that film created by Alfonso Cuarón, I believe is the director, is just so wonderful. It captures what I felt when I was reading the book. It captures exactly, you know, how I have always imagined Hogwarts when I was reading the books as a kid, and even as I continue to revisit them, you know, almost every year it feels like I, I revisit one or two of the books. And I I love the movie. It's not it's not it's not ever going to be like the movie I pull off my shelf like unconditionally, but it always makes me really happy to watch that film and, and probably makes me the happiest of the films to watch. Yeah, you know, personally, I think this is one of the best movie series overall of all time, uh, because I think that there's a lot to enjoy in every single movie in this franchise. I mean, you know, there are some, obviously, which are better than others. Sure. But personally, I think my favorites in the series are Deathly Hallows Part 1 and uh, Goblet of Fire. Um, but I also am a big fan of The Prisoner of Azkaban, and I think it's the first movie where I, th- I think it, it starts to get a little darker. The, the whole oh, scene, yeah, the absolutely. series goes as a whole yeah. with this movie. Like, the first two movies have that sort of childlike, yep. you know... And that's Christopher Columbus. Yeah, and that's, um, like, so Christopher Columbus's directing style. Like, I just very I, much see, like, the... I've watched them so many times, and I've thought about this so much, that I can just see the 
the directorial vision changed from like director to director. And I think Alfonso Cuaron just nails it so much. He introduces that dark atmosphere, as you just mentioned, you know, taking, taking us out of the, I think you, I think that's what you've said is just so right. So right. So spot on that the, the childlike atmosphere, even if the material is really dark in Sorcerer's Stone and, you know, Chamber of Secrets, when you really think about it, it, it it's the way, you know, the camera angles, the, the, almost the filter that the camera is shot through even, in a way, it's just so much darker, and and it really it really gives a better sense, I think, of what Harry Potter can be more than the first two movies, and and, and it's never really recaptured for me after. Yeah, and you also, of course, get the introduction of one of my favorite characters in the series with Sirius Black, played yeah. by Gary Oldman, um, and obviously the relationship between him and Harry becomes very important throughout the series. So Absolutely. you get that uh, major development in the series as well. So yeah, I agree. This is definitely in the upper crust of the Harry Potter movies. Although, like I said, I think that all of the movies are good. I yeah. would call all of them good. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't, they're not all great. Yeah, I I would definitely agree with that. I think that you know, Goblet of Fire. I'd probably like that movie more if it wasn't my favorite book. And there's just so the things that I love most about that book are cut out of the film, and so I'm always a little bit bitter about yeah. it. But uh, I get that it's, you know, you're adapting a 740, whatever it was, page book into a two and a half hour at most movie. Sure. It's tough. I, I get you have to make sacrifices and I get the content that was cut was stuff that was not essential to the plot. But it's some of the stuff that that made the book so enjoyable to, for me to read uh, the first time I was reading it in, in elementary school. Yeah. Um, I could talk. Okay. Uh, we could have a whole separate podcast for me to talk about Harry Potter. So yeah. <laughs> let's move on. <laughs> So, for my choice, um, you know, there were a lot of big franchises, big well-known franchises that I thought about going with. Obviously, Star Wars Return of the Jedi is a great movie, although I don't think it actually, I think actually it is loses some of its luster a little bit because the Empire Strikes Back is such a great, well, the Ewoks, yeah, but also <laughs> Empire Strikes Back is such a great movie. And like, the, the same could be said about The Dark Knight Rises is that I actually, I am a huge fan of The Dark Knight Rises. Like, I loved that movie when it came out, but I think that it doesn't... It's so long. Well, it it doesn't have the, you know, reputation maybe that it deserves because The Dark Knight was, like, so amazing and is one of the greatest movies of all time. Yep. Um, and so, like, you know, it was, there was obviously going to be a letdown with the third movie. Um, sure. Although I wouldn't say there was much of a letdown, in my opinion. But, Agreed. Yeah. Um, you know, for me, that maybe takes some of those movies out of the running. Um, but I went back for my choice all the way back to 1969 for, I guess what you could call one of the very first movie franchises of sorts. Um, there weren't really movie trilogies, um, prior to this one. I mean, you know, you can look at things like the Thin Man movies maybe as the first real franchise, but there's Bond, Bond movies, bonafide trilogy. Yeah. James Bond. True. Um, uh, but but, but, you know, as far as Bonafide trilogies go, this is one of the first. And I'm talking about Sergio Leone's Man With No Name trilogy. Um, of which is really, These are really the movies that uh, define the, the spaghetti western genre. Yep. Um, of course, you, have, you start off with um, A Fistful of Dollars. And uh, For a Few Dollars More is the sequel. And all of them, of course, feature um, Clint Eastwood as uh, the man with no name. It's sort of the role that really... Uh, broke Clint Eastwood through to stardom um, in America. And, you know, while those first two movies in the series are good, I think everything really just comes to such a brilliant uh, conclusion in the final movie, what many consider to be the greatest Western of all time, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Um, and 
you know, you get this sort of introduction of characters with each movie. Like, the first movie focuses only on um, Clint Eastwood's character, the man with no name. Um, however, in the second movie, um, which is for a few dollars more, uh, you get the introduction of Lee Van Cleef, who plays the bad in The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, uh, Colonel Douglas Mortimer. Uh, and then in the third movie, uh, we get the ugly. We meet the ugly, um, who is Tuco, played by Eli Wallach. And I think that his character is one of the things which makes, uh, which takes uh, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly above those other movies and above most Westerns. Uh, for me, at least, I think his, his character adds comic relief to the proceedings, and he's just... Uh, uh, a ve- an extremely colorful character as opposed to uh, the the other two uh, main characters who are very very self serious very determined um, and you know the plot of the plot of this hunt for gold hunt for treasure is you know it really draws you in throughout the movie um, and of course it concludes with um, probably the greatest gunfight in movie history um, where, where you have this epic standoff between the three characters I mean. You know, if you've seen the movie, you know that it goes on probably six or seven minutes of these two characters stalking each other, staring each other down, basically waiting for each other to draw. Um, and so that, you know, we talked about sustained suspense with A Quiet Place. This is another incredible scene of sustained suspense. Um, and of course, we, I, I uh, would be remiss to not mention the amazing score by the great Ennio Morricone, um, who has created created some of the uh, greatest movie scores of all time but this may be his most famous work of course the iconic title song as well as the ecstasy of gold two incredibly famous um movie songs and they just complement the movie so well um and you know obviously i'm a huge western fan so i'm biased in that respect but this is definitely one of the greats sure I, honestly i just have to admit that i'm shocked you didn't pick godfather part three so hey you know i think it is an underrated movie in my opinion is uh, it? I don't know. I re- hopeless performance, notwithstanding. I was um, okay. I was, I was literally about to say that. That and like Joe Mont is it Montaigne? I don't know. Montaigne, yeah, yeah. Not great in that movie. Anyway, well, you know, it's it's hard to follow those first two. It's true. It's it's not fair when you have to follow two of the greatest movies of all time. Um, yes. Anyway, that all right. So yeah, so cool discussion topic, Scott. <laughs> you threw me for a <laughs> loop when you mentioned that one uh, <laughs> originally, and I, I I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. Good. All right, so now it's time to talk, as always, a little movie trivia schmodown. It's been two weeks, and there have been other matches, but it feels fitting that we talk about the free-for-all, which we watched together on Friday. Uh, is that where you want to focus all our time today, or do you want to spend any time on some of the other matches? No, I think there's just a lot to talk about with the free-for-all. We, you know, we don't have to go into everything, uh, because we're not the schmodown rundown. But, yep. um, you know... The, this was an event which I was extremely excited for. I mean, 48 competitors. Um, last year's free-for-all was maybe the highlight of last season. Created some of the most amazing showdown moments of all time. You know, Mark Andreco clearing the table. John Humphrey going 15 rounds. Um, you know, these are things that people are still talking about in the showdown to this day. So I was waiting for more of those iconic moments to happen with the free-for-all part two. And, you know, just in general to see... Who all was going to compete? You know, was Dan Merle going to be back? Was Mark Riley going to be back? Uh, you know, who would be sort of the John Humphrey of this year's free-for-all of like an un- unsuspecting, you know, player who suddenly, you know, does great and, and has, a you know, a breakthrough performance. Um, and I think that, for the most part, this uh, special delivered, like the entire event delivered. And we were talking about, I mean, 
mean, it's it's over four hours long, I believe. Yeah. But we were talking about at the end of it, we were like, it kind of flew by. Like, you it know, did. It, I, I've seen some people talking about how they thought it. There were parts where it lagged, but it didn't really lag that much for me um, because there were always there was always interesting people at the table. Um, yep. And you know, to talk about some of the top performers, um, obviously William Bibiani was the MVP. Um, and you know, I kept saying to you throughout the whole thing, like. Bibbs is going to win this because he just, I mean, he was utterly unstoppable for, I think it's 20 something rounds. He lasted. Yeah. Um, I don't know the number off the top of my head, but it was a lot. It was over 20 for sure. Yeah. And standing up the whole time I read afterwards, apparently he had to go to the bathroom the entire time. So that's one of the reasons why that's <laughs> he hilarious. was standing up the whole time. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, and, and we talked about this too, how he never even came close to being eliminated really. Like he was yep. hitting four and five points in every round pretty much. Um, and so it was an un- unbelievable performance of endurance as well as, you know, movie trivia knowledge. Um, you know, so maybe some people that I wasn't expecting to do as well, like uh, Frank Moran uh, yep. from Team Box Office Breakdown went eight rounds. Sean Gerber from Superhero News went six rounds. Juan Harris, although, you know, he has proven himself, um, I think at this point, went 12 rounds um, yep. and did very well. Um, McQueenie? Even... Well, yeah, I mean, I actually, McQueenie was my choice to win. Oh, sure, yeah, that's um, true, yeah. He went, he, he went, like, 12 or 15 rounds, though, I think. You know who uh, underperformed? You know, underperformed is Mark Mark Riley, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, you know, it was exciting to see Mark Riley get back out there, but um, he uh, he stuck it up, really. Um, unfortunately, he got a bad draw, but, you know, it's one out of five. get back out there. Yeah, and one out of five. And also, on maybe a different note, we also had the return of Finstock. You know, people have been hyping this up for a long time. Um, but Finstock is back. Uh, he, though he did not last very long in the free-for-all, I will be interested to see if the Finstock character, if Dagnino continues playing the Finstock character throughout um, the rest of the season. He's going to stay um, busy and, if he's playing two characters. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and, you know, maybe he's going to become commissioner now with this whole new development. Oh, um, they get, they've got 500 patrons to go before they get to that point. So Yeah, I don't know if it's going to happen. I know there's another um, competitor in particular who you want to talk about who also made it all the way to the end, although he didn't win. Of course, Miss Movies' Brienne took home the ultimate prize after a very impressive performance. Uh, this is a guy who... Uh, We've seen once. One, yep. We've seen him once one. already, yeah. And I, I was talking to you, I think even before we started watching, I mean, even before he sat down in the chair, this is a guy who was saying, hey, like this guy isn't out there yet he's going to crush it in the free-for-all. And that was Ethan Irwin, uh, who had had his first match against Yolanda Machado, I believe, earlier. Yeah. And she played a pretty solid round, and he crushed her. And I was pretty excited to see what he was going to be able to do. Granted, like, the free-for-all, we're talking round one questions here usually. There's, like, the occasional pretty difficult question. But, I yeah. mean, one of the reasons that you could say Bibiani did so well is because he didn't have to play the round three questions. <laughs> Uh, facing your round three questions as in there. As Mark Ellis pointed out. Yeah, as Mark Ellis pointed out. But Ethan Irwin absolutely crushed it. You know, we talked about how Bibiani never really came close to going out. I can only remember once off the top of my head where Ethan Irwin was close to going out. He was steady, steady, you know, steady Eddie doesn't really apply to him, but uh, steady Ethan over there um, opposite from Bibiani. And I saw this stat, I'm not sure if it was on Facebook or where it was, but there were only three people who sat in the number one position the entire time. Yeah, it was, was McQueenie, Sean Gerber, and yeah, Ethan Irwin. Yeah, 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 Gerber, McQueenie, and Ethan Irwin. And that just shows you, like, you know, 
I mean, one, that's crazy that only three people sat in the chair the whole time. But two, uh, Ethan Ir- all three of those guys brought it, and you know, Ethan Irwin especially. So I don't know how I don't know the number of rounds he lasted, but I would not have at all been surprised before the free for all happened, and I w- wouldn't have been surprised at the very end when he was still at the table if he was if he had won it. Yeah, I mean, you know, I was still a little skeptical of him, although you were you were high on him going into this. Just because he'd only played one match, I was skeptical. Yeah, and, he, and you he rightfully has, put, he, he hit Spinner's Choice in round two in his match. Yeah, he removed all doubt um, with this performance. And honestly, I think Christian owes it to us now to give us a Bibiani ethan Irwin match, um, because I think it would be epic. And actually, Christian pointed out on Twitter today, I'd forgotten this, but he pointed out that, in the season preview special before this season even kicked off. He talked about he, Ethan Irwin, yeah. He talked about how he thought Ethan Irwin was going to dominate the league, and I hadn't even remembered that. But a uh, good prediction by uh, corruption, as uh, Brian Davids would call him. Uh, but, uh, yeah, he's obviously, I think he's going to be a force to be reckoned with, and he will probably be having title shots um, coming very soon. But also I was very excited to see Miss Movies win, not only to make you know, not only make her return to this showdown, but... To win as well, I think she only missed one question. Yeah, nine, out nineteen out of twenty questions. That's just crazy. Yeah, which you know, some people are trying to take away from what she did because she wasn't out there for that long. Yeah, she was only out there for four rounds, I think. You can't argue with nineteen out of twenty questions. Not to mention Sam Levine last year. What you know was the next to last competitor, so he was really only out there for like yeah. two rounds, and he only answered and, six of ten questions correctly. I think. Right, and no one is questioning his movie trivia ability. I mean, he is the champion, but. Uh, you know, I don't think anyone should question what Brienne did. Um, you know, that's part of the game is the fact that you may draw a later number. Yep. Um, yep. You know, it absolutely. didn't help some people. It didn't help Wendy Lee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it didn't help Wendy Lee, and on the reverse side of the coin, it didn't help Tom Dagnino to, to draw number number two. So. Yeah, it was really expected that he was going to run the table, but. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I put a lot of money pretty heavily on him early on, and wow, that was I really regret that now. So also, we have to briefly talk about the Dan Merle tease. Yeah, I was gonna um, I was gonna go to that next. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, because you know everyone's like maybe the biggest talking point going into this was is Dan Merle going to come out of retirement? You know, he is the greatest showdown player of all time. I don't think anyone would really dispute that. Um, he held the title belt on multiple occasions. You know, was he going to come out of retirement? And it looked like he was going to with actually the penultimate number. We had the, the Jaws music. We had Christian give him the introduction. Even going through, he actually said Dan Merle's name only for Andrew Guy uh, to emerge from behind the curtain and make his return to the showdown um, after, you know, he's, he was banned, of course, for tackling Roca at the Spectacular. Um, but he's back now. Actually, there are some pretty great reaction videos that people have been posting on the Facebook page of like big groups watching the event and you know reacting when they thought Merle was about to come out and then their reactions when Andrew Guy walked out are, are pretty good. So that was that was a good uh, good tease that they they gave us. Yeah, I know that you were really disappointed at the time. You felt really underwhelmed. In <laughs> retrospect, thinking back, like it's pretty awesome. Yeah, it it, it it was a it was a it was a good way for Andrew Guy to make his return. Yep. All right, I, I don't know if I have anything else to like just explicitly call out. You've covered it all really well. Is there anything else that sticks out in your mind that we've missed? No, you know. Oh, actually, we, I take it back. Jen Sturger. Jen Sturger crushing it Jen all four desk, hours. Yeah, oh my goodness. RIP to her. I don't know how she made it that long. I know, because she also did the pre interviews and the post interviews. Yeah. Um, so, shout out to her. Um, a lot of people have been wanting her at the table, and. 
I think she'll be back. Like that's one of the things I've enjoyed about the season is in general is seeing different people at the table. Like I think pretty much everyone who's been at the table has crushed it, except for that random guy who was promoting his show on Crackle. Um, <laughs> yeah. During the inner geek, he had no uh, idea what was going on. It was great. Yeah, his conversations with John Roca, especially because John Roca kept calling him the wrong name, um, was were pretty hilarious. Oh, but, I, I didn't even yeah, notice that he was calling him the wrong name. Yeah, a couple times he did. Oh my um, goodness! So that was great. <laughs> but uh, but with the exception of that guy, everyone has done really well at the table. Um, so that's been it's been good to see you know some changes from Christian and Mark um, at the table. Yeah, and I do want to give a shout out to Mark Ellis. Great, great entrance at oh, at yes. uh, the free for all. Poor guy walked right into a murderer's row table and what? still managed to survive around. And if not for Emma Fife, would have made it a little bit longer. Yeah, I believe he's and he knocked out a couple of big hitters too. Like I think he knocked out maybe Whitney Seibold and Mark Andreco. Um, I want to say, yeah. but yeah, he did, he he did a good job. I'm not going to be going back and checking the feed. It was a long, it was a couple of long videos. Yeah, no, I, I'm so. not expecting you to. <laughs> yeah, all right, man. Well, um, anything else for the Schmodown or we move on to some news? Yeah, we just we just got some big matches coming up. Um, you know, we'll see Clark and, and Mike Kalinowski soon. We'll see the Inner Geekdom title match soon. Christian posted a schedule today that goes like up to June. So go check that out for what's coming up. A lot, a lot of big matches. Absolutely, yeah. There, are you. This week seems maybe a little bit of a lull in terms of the not necessarily the quality of the matches, but in terms of the names playing in the matches. And then it sounds like we're hitting a couple title, uh, title related or title implicated matches uh, yeah. the week after next. Yep. All right. So to finish up today's episode, we have some headlines to go through from the news. Uh, I don't expect that we'll spend too long on any particular one of these, but just to blow through them here, a League of Their Own TV series is rumored to be in the works. I know, I mean, you're a sports movie fan, Scott. What have you, how do you feel about this? This is one of the uh, better baseball movies, in my opinion. Um, so I'm not opposed to the idea of a TV series, especially because I think the idea of an all-female baseball team is something that, you know, can, can resonate with um with viewers, especially nowadays. Um, yep. But, you know, they'll need to get, I'll be interested to see who they cast in the Tom Hanks role, because they'll need to get somebody who has the same sort of charisma as Tom yeah. Hanks, because that's one of his best performances, in my opinion. Billy Bob Thornton, I'm sure. He's like the nailed on every every baseball yeah, team he, manager. he would be good. He'd be good. No, I mean, like, I say that half-jokingly, but I feel like he's, yeah, yeah. he's played, like, the manager of a baseball team so many times, I feel like. Bad News like, Bears. Yeah. yeah. I feel like there's other more crappy movies than Bad News Bears that he's been in. But anyway, um, yeah, so that's that's something that I came across my radar I thought you'd be interested in. Black Panther box office stats, something that maybe I'm a little bit more interested than you, but it recently ha- has become third all-time domestically with $674 million. Again, that's just in the U.S., so it's over-indexing in the U.S. relative to how most movies perform. But to give it a little context, uh, Star Wars The Force Awakens is domestically the largest movie by far all-time. Like I think it was like 900 and. 30 something million dollars domestically just absolutely insane and then avatar was around 750 i think and then it black panther recently passed titanic jurassic world marvel's the avengers the last jedi the dark knight all these are movies that it's passed recently um so pretty impressive stuff from black panther you know it's long tail it is kind of probably winding down a little bit but we'll see if it has any more legs it's probably not going to beat out avatar i don't think it has another 90 million in it um, but on the worldwide box office, it's recently become number 10, and it's only about 
20 million behind Star Wars The Last Jedi at the globe at the worldwide box office. I, I, you know, maybe it has another 20 million in it with uh with Infinity War coming up and people if it's still in theaters, people might come and go go out and see it again, especially as it now seems pretty apparent that Wakanda is going to play a very significant role in Infinity War. But uh, it recently passed Frozen at the worldwide box office, Beauty and the Beast from last year. And these are crazy. So so Black Panther is like 50, I think it's 51-ish percent of its revenue has come from the domestic box office. Whereas like most of these movies that I'm like listing off are like 30% of its yeah. like overall gross. So like even like, even Star Wars The Last Jedi, only 46% of its gross came in the U.S., and I think even The Force Awakens, only 45% of it came in the U.S. Like, it's crazy. Um, so this movie, it, it's had an impressive run at the box office. And, you know, maybe maybe it can generate $20 million more to get it past The Last Jedi. We'll see. I'd love to see it beat out Avatar because it, it, it... It's not going to beat out way, Avatar. It's a way, I know, it's not going to, but it is a way better movie than Avatar. Yeah, I mean, I mean, if you want some Avatar stats here, I think it, it grossed something like $2.8 billion at the worldwide box office, which is just absurd. I know, it's I unreal. It, yeah. Unreal. I mean, I think that that might be, you know, with like the GDP... Uh, sorry, the, um, the, the, CP, the Consumer Price Index, so it's like indexed yeah. up. But uh, still, like, only 27% of its revenue was generated in the U.S. So it's... Pa- like, Black Panther has... Pa- it is not going to pass it in either domestic or worldwide, but that kind of puts it in perspective, I think. Yeah. All right, anyway, so another TV series on the cards, this one you're probably less interested in, and but Amazon is rumored to be creating a five-season Lord of the Rings TV series. I have absolutely no idea. I'm only assuming that this is going to be based off like the Silmarillion, which I don't know if you're familiar with Tolkien at all, but it's kind of like the anthology of stories that didn't make it into like The Hobbit or you know The Fellowship of the Ring, The Two Towers, Return of the King. Uh, it's this massive anthology of stories that kind of spans Middle Earth the, in terms of time, from the First Age to you know even after the events of Lord of the Rings. Um, Have they already ordered five seasons? I don't know. I admit I didn't do too much of my homework on this. I think that they have ordered one season, and they are rumored okay. to tar- be targeting five. Well, I could when, they, when Lord of the Rings, they know how to do it big. That's for sure. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see if Peter Jackson's involved with it all. I mean, I know I'm a bigger fan than you are, as in, like, you're not a fan. <laughs> so, yeah. well, we'll see. I'm a fan at all. Yeah, 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 exactly. Uh, but we can move on from that. I know that it probably is uh, grinding your gears just to be talking about it for 30 seconds. So, uh, Terminator Reboot. Uh, we mentioned it, I think, a couple weeks ago. Uh, maybe. I'm not 100% mm-hmm. sure. I think it came up. But it's already been delayed back to November 2019. Honestly, I could have told you when it was originally supposed to be releasing. I presume, like, in the summer of next year. But it's been pushed back to kind of the holiday season. So that's probably nothing to be too concerned about. Probably just involves some like a slight change in direction, maybe some reshoots. I don't know how far along it is in the process already. I guess that's yeah. probably process dependent. But anyway, uh, next topic: most rented movie of 2017. I was floored when I saw this earlier today. As was I. <laughs> ben Affleck's The Accountant was the most <laughs> rented movie of 2017. I just like I do not understand how that's possible. Well, I think you have to think about the demographic of people who rent movies maybe maybe um, it's probably maybe an older audience that is renting I movies i rent movies um, a lot i don't know yeah no i know I, yeah i'm not saying that everyone who rents movies is an older person but <laughs> i know, am maybe, at heart maybe so this bad. is a movie targeted at older people you know sort of a more like grown-up thriller type movie i mean it's about an accountant for pete's sake like i don't think the the high school kids who are sitting next to me at a quiet place are were running out to see the, a movie called the Accountant the accountant um so yeah. you know that might have something to do with it but i still don't understand how it even came close to being the number one most rented movie yeah i mean this is a crime thriller so it's not like i mean 
topically, I guess I get why it would be interesting to people. But it's like Ben Affleck and like Anna Kendrick and J.K. Simmons, I think. Not it's like not that well reviewed, and it, and it didn't like crush at the box office. I guess people just were really into renting it. Maybe oh, it yeah. had really good deals on iTunes or something. <laughs> Maybe yeah, I don't pay attention to those things. Maybe it was like a ninety nine cent rental one week, and people were just like all about <laughs> it. Ninety nine cents forever. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, so. In other news, we haven't... I think we might have talked about It once or twice on this podcast, but It Part 2 uh, reportedly adding Bill Hader and James McAvoy to the cast. I don't know if this uh, tickles your fancy at all, if you are if you're fans of these actors. Yeah, I mean, that's... I, I have enjoyed their work, in, uh, both of their work in, in various movies. Um, so, you know, that, that does interest me, and I'll be interested to see who else plays. Did, have they already cast who's playing Beverly? Isn't it, it Jessica, Jessica isn't it Jessica Chastain? Yeah, I think. Okay. If it's not if it's not confirmed, that's like the front runner. That'll be good. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think they'll they'll have a strong cast overall. Yeah, I think their budget's going to be need to be a little bit higher for this part too, since you know they'll probably actually yeah. be paying their actors this time. Hey, I mean, Finn Wolfhard is arguably a bigger star than uh, Bill Hader is at this point. Oh no, that's not possible. There's no way. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what the views. He's Stranger Things, right? Yeah, between Stranger Things and it, I mean, he's. He's killing it right Maybe. now. Maybe. I don't know. I'd have to go look at the numbers, how well it did, but I guess Stranger Things, that's true. Yeah. All right, so ending on a sad note, uh, unfortunately, you pointed this out to me because I had forgotten to add this as part of our but Milos Foreman has passed away. Yeah, uh, re- really uh, sad to see this, although, you know, he was 86 years old. He, he lived a good life. Um, but he uh, is, of course, if you're not familiar with him, uh, Polish director, I believe. Czech. I believe he's, he's Czech. Uh, Czech American. Czech. Czech. Yeah, my bad. Yep. Um, but he has directed some classic American films. Yep. Um, People versus Larry Flint is a movie which I personally love. Um, wow, I did not also, expect that to be the first film out of your mouth. There. Well, no, I was I was building up to. Okay. Um, he also has directed his his two most famous movies. Um, and, and two of my personal favorite movies of all time, I would probably put them up there in my top 20, 25 movies of all time, um, are One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, of course, adapted from the Ken Kesey book, yep. and Amadeus, yep. adopted from Peter Schaeffer's play about uh, Mozart right. and Salieri. Um, these are just two incredible movies, if you haven't seen them. Um, both, I think, have a really great blend of comedy and drama, um, and, you know, some truly iconic performances from Jack Nicholson in um, One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest, and then, of course, from both Tom Hulse and F. Murray Abraham, particularly Abraham, in uh, his Oscar-winning performance in Amadeus, um, which is, yeah, maybe a movie that people haven't seen as much as they've seen One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest, but I think it's, it's so good. But maybe the best movie about music ever made, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, it won eight Academy Awards, I believe. Is is that? Yeah, won Best Picture. Yeah. Yeah, won Best Picture, Best Actor in a Leading Role, Best Screenplay, Best Art Direction, Best Costume Design. The list goes on. Best Director Maybe for Milo. Maybe a future movie club movie. I think it'd be worth it, man. I I mean, I'll admit that I've it, it's been a few years since I've seen Amadeus. I think it was back in high school. It's probably the last time I saw it. But what a wonderful film. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, sadly, we're ending on on that note. But I think that should just about do it. For episode eight of Some Like It, Scott. Scott, do you have any parting thoughts to leave us with today, other than you know, go see these two films we talked about? Uh, yeah, unfortunately, I have to report that on an also sad note, Bartolo Colon's perfect game has been broken up in the seventh inning. God, um, so you and your Indians, sad. jeez. No, no. 
44-year-old obese man was about to pitch a perfect game against the defending World Series champions, but unfortunately it has not happened. <laughs> well, that's, that is quite a note to leave <laughs> us with. Where can people find you on Twitter? Uh, at Scarvey Dent, um, I'll be uh, tweeting out about other children who are on dates next to me at uh, future oh, movies. That's a great so story. You should you should go ahead and talk about it. That's such a good story. Yeah, well, the other night at uh, when I went to see A Quiet Place, it was a sold-out theater, and so I knew I was going to be sitting next to some folks, and, you know, about 10 minutes before the movie started, um, two kids, and, I, you know, I said on Twitter that there, I thought there were about 13 but I, I've also learned that recently that I'm really bad at guessing how old people are. Like, I, I feel like when it comes to like teenagers and kids, I always think they're younger than they are. Um, and so they, they might have been like 15. But it was clear that they were, you know, on a little cute little date. Um, to see a quiet place, no less. Jesus. Well, exactly. And, like, I don't understand, you know, this is maybe a non sequitur, but how <laughs> 13-year-olds go on dates. Like that's just not something that ever entered my head when I was thirteen. That'll be like, a that'll be a podcast special we'll do for Patreon. We'll leave that one yeah. with this. <laughs> um, but anyway, so you know, yeah, like you said, they were there to see a quiet place. So I'm thinking this dude better be making a move when this movie gets scary. You know, he better he better make the move like in that Coca Cola advertisement that they always used to show before the movies. Oh yeah, like the kid, the like, arm struggling yeah. to put his arm around the girl until finally she just grabs his arm um, and puts it around her. And honestly, I thought that was what was going to happen in this situation because um, the girl was literally dropping the "I'm scared" card in the trailers. Like <laughs> it wasn't even a scary trailer either. I like I don't even remember what movie it was. It's probably Mission Impossible she was or something. Saying, I'm scared. Yeah, it might have been Mission Impossible. <laughs> she was like, I'm scared already. And I'm like, dude, come on. But he sat there the whole time with his arms crossed like he was in a straight jacket. Jesus. Um, so I, I don't know if he wasn't having it, but Maybe he just yeah, wasn't please. maybe just these characters weren't resonating with him on the maybe he's just like a deep yeah, film critic was, who does his own he podcast. Was being too, he was being he was just really focusing on the movie. I bet he's he's an amateur movie critic like we are and he doesn't have time for, you know, distractions when he goes to the goes to the movies. Yeah. By the way, also on that same note with regards to a quiet place, um I have a pet peeve about people eating popcorn during movies. Oh god. I think pop, popcorn we both is really an annoying snack. Like I don't understand who decided a long time ago that popcorn would be the perfect snack to have during, you know, a, an experience where you are trying to remain quiet in a um, movie called A Quiet Place? <laughs> yeah, and so, but but also, I understand that for some people, for whatever reason, getting popcorn is part of their it's movie the experience, experience yeah, yeah. when they go to the movie. So I yep. put up with it. However, during A Quiet Place, this is probably the one movie ever where I would say, please do not get popcorn. Um, <laughs> Or at least eat it all before the movie starts. Sure. The dude next to me, the, the dude sitting on the other side of me, walks in like one minute before the movie starts with like chicken tenders, <laughs> and I was like, "Dude, what are you doing?" And he also had popcorn. I think he was with his wife or whatever. Um, but amazing. Like, he started crunching, you know, when the oh. movie is like dead silent, and I'm like, "Come on, man!" So, needless to say, it was an interesting experience on both sides of my chair. Um, while watching A Quiet Place. Uh, but hopefully the relationship between those two children worked out. Or as, you know, as serious of a relationship as you can have when you're age 13. 
Sure. And I, I, that's also a pet peeve. I, I don't have much problem with popcorn. I mean, I, I get that it's such a core part of the experience for a lot of people, and I respect that. But my, my people, the people that piss me off are, like, people who eat potato chips in oh, yeah. theaters. Like, potato chips are, like, in some ways, like, any, like, hard candy, too, that they're, like, crunching on. I had this yeah. guy in my viewing of A Quiet Place. He wasn't, it doesn't sound like it's as bad as the guy you were talking about. But he, this is unrelated, actually, to his consumption of food. But he had, like, a bag of something that he was eating during the film. And then, like, just at a random point in the film, I assume he was done with the bag. He just drops it on the floor. <laughs> Makes a noise, drops it on the floor. What a straight savage. <laughs> yeah, I was like. That's an alpha move right there. I was like, man, come on, dude. Like, first off, like, one, you didn't need to do that. Two, you just, like, it was, like, a pretty tense moment in the film. I don't know. Like, people who make a lot of noise in films, in, in movies, I don't mind it so much, like, when I'm watching a movie at home, if I'm, like, watching it with someone. But, like, in a theater, it kind of kind of bothers me. Especially with that movie, too. I'm like, stop crunching. The creatures are going to hear you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Don't, do you want to die or something? <laughs> uh, yeah, all right. Well, okay, we, we've, we're getting off our soapbox now. Uh, so you're at Scarvy Dent on Twitter. I'm yeah. at S. Shelton2013. More importantly, however, we also want to remind you about our Patreon page, and we'd love it if you checked us out over there, especially so if you decided to support us to help us cover the cost of making the show, of course, in exchange for different reward tiers, uh, the least of which is you get the podcast at least a day early each time. So that's something to check out. We have more reward tiers from there. Uh, if that doesn't interest you, however, that's okay. You can still find us on Apple Podcasts, where we'd really appreciate if you rated, reviewed, subscribed, shared, all that jazz, so that we can continue to reach a wider audience. All right, I've said enough. We really appreciate all of you taking the time out of your day to listen to us chat about movies and a couple, uh, well, anecdotes at the end there. We'll be back in a couple weeks with what is probably the most hyped movie of the year thus far. Sorry, Scott. Avengers Infinity War, (laughs) along with our movie club discussion of rocket science. But until then, we hope you have a wonderful day. For Scott Harvey, I'm Scott Shelton. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thank you.